Just how much do last year's player injuries predict this year's player injuries? We'll ask Jeff Zimmerman of Rotographs, the Hardball Times, Rotowire, Baseball HQ, and elsewhere, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Thursday, March the 15th. It's show number five of the 2017 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Thursday show for you. We'll talk with Jeff Zimmerman from Rotographs, the Hardball Times, Rotowire, even Baseball HQ, about the predictive value of player injuries, about patterns in prospect promotion, his regular spring notes column at Rotographs, job security for closers, and his boons and banes for 2018. We'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols, looking at Jake Arrieta, Nick Williams, and other National League players. And from the American League, Jock Thompson looks at Jonathan Lucroy, Mike Moustakis, and other players. We'll also have commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Minor League Minute, Baseball HQ Minor Leagues Analyst Rob Gordon reports on Colorado first base prospect Ryan McMahon. In our frequent flyer commentary, Baseball HQ Analyst Alex Becky looks at Baltimore outfielder Anthony Santander. And in our continuing position previews, Baseball HQ Analyst Greg Fishwick wraps it up with a look at catchers and designated hitters. Later in the show, I'll have our weekly talk with Todd, asking Todd Zola about the new rules of streaming pitchers. And finally, in Master Notes, I'll be talking about spying on competitors in other leagues. It's another big Thursday show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Tout Wars draft this weekend, a lot of drafting going on this weekend. Of course, we gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Thursday edition, part one of our interview with our feature guest expert, Jeff Zimmerman from Rotographs, The Hardball Times, Rotowire, Baseball HQ, and elsewhere. Jeff Zimmerman, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Uh, thanks for having me back. Well, I'm really looking forward to this. Uh, before we get started, uh, how many leagues do you think you'll be uh, playing in this season? If things stay, it's only six, which is actually double from last year. I really try to cut down, and this year... Um, I got talked into three of them, and I'm. We'll, we'll see how many goes. I was having too many, and I was just kind of doing mediocre in them, so I decided to cut down and just concentrate on the few of them. And this year, I said yes to some, and we'll see um, if I can say a little bit n- more no next year. When you have multiple teams, even if it is only three or six, uh, which is a relatively small number compared to some experts who play in dozens, uh, how do you manage them, Jeff? It's I usually the one thing that is what is how I cut back is I got rid of daily transaction leagues, and it just gives me a break that I don't have to actually have to look at the team every single day and just kind of wear down. And I just kind of just like once on the weekend, you should, now it's going to have to be Sunday morning. Usually it was Sunday evening because Tout Wars is making us do our um, transactions before noon. Um, I'm going 
I just usually just sat down and just kind of looked at the week and spent a couple hours and then just set the teams and just, it's kind of nice. Some people don't like losing the control, but it's nice, like, I've made my best decision, you know, set the rosters and let it go. And, I mean, you kind of have to do your fab on Sunday and then Monday morning you'll set the lineups, but usually kind of all those decisions are made and then just watch the guys and kind of enjoy the week and watch all, like, the new pitchers come up and, I, I just think I, I just really enjoy the weekly lineups because I'm not having to spend I'm spending more time watching players, trying to evaluate them, looking for um, advantages instead of going in and set my lineups every single day. Yeah, I think uh, I think the daily leagues. Uh, it sounds corny to say, but I think they're for younger guys who maybe have more time on their hands. I know that I, I, when I was younger and single, I used to play in a and more leagues and also in daily leagues because that was part of the fun of it. You know, you're deeply immersed in it and everything like that. But boy, you got uh, you know, you're married, you got some kids, you got responsibilities and meetings and committees and school and stuff like that. Pretty soon, uh, the time crunch just gets to you. Yeah, and you just can't take a break. Like I do like to go outside hiking like i like disappearing from the internet for two or three days and i can do this and as i was in daily leagues with which were hyper competitive and i'm a hyper competitive person it just drove me nuts knowing that i couldn't compete like i just was like so it was just i just sleep slept better at night i knew what i could do and even if even this year one time um for one week mike podhoser was running two tout wars first place teams because i let him take mine because i was on vacation and i was like i don't even know if i'm i was going down the Dominican republic and i was like i don't even know if they're supposed to have internet who knows here's what i'll do and he's like i did nothing dude your team's in first place i was like okay <laughs> you know one of those things but I, I just find it easier that way and so there's a lot of times i've been asked to join leagues and they're like daily transactions and they're like yes like i'm out i just don't do them now, in in the drafts you've seen so far or participated in so far, one of the big stories so far in in um, fantasy baseball has been the move of money in auction leagues and draft rounds in draft leagues towards starting pitchers. And I've seen stories about some auction leagues where the the uh, pitcher hitter mix has gone from you know the usual sixty nine thirty one or sixty eight thirty two all the way down to sixty three thirty seven uh, sixty four thirty six like that it's quite a shift of money or so it appears what have you noticed about the uh, movement of money or high draft picks towards the uh, pitching starting pitching in particular a couple things I think the big thing is is instead of there being a big one there's a big four pitchers and I think owners are wanting one of those big four starters this year, Sale, Kluber, Kershaw, and... Max Scherzer. Scherzer, yeah. So so you have those four, and they're kind of going in the... I mean, if they're not going in the first round of every draft, they're going immediately in the second, probably in the top 20 picks. Like I said, usually top 15, sometimes even earlier. I mean, that's just been unheard of since I've played. I mean, maybe you'll have one, maybe two... Maybe some home leagues where um, it just may be a little bit differently, but usually that's just not the case. I mean, last year most of the top pitchers are going around the – or after Scherzer around the turn, around the 2-3 turn is when the starters were coming off the board. Everyone is grabbing hitting then. So I think, I think those top guys are really getting valued quite a bit more, and, and that's part of the mix. And then after they've come off the board, it's, it's generally kind of normal. You get, you know, in a 15-team league, probably like six guys or four, 
four guys per round coming off the board, and it just kind of goes that way. And then usually around your fourth or fifth round, you start seeing closers kind of trickling off the board to kind of join the starters. And I just think the top, that's where I've seen it at. Maybe there's some jump up, but I'm kind of of the mindset I'll get those four. There's maybe a couple others like DeGrom or Strasburg that I would target. But otherwise, I'm just going to kind of back off and just kind of see where the values come out after that. So it's um, I'm not jumping at it, and I don't see a lot of people rushing to get starters if it's not those top four. And that still leaves the question about the top four in uh, in single league formats. Of course, it's only a top two in each league. Do you think there's a, a justification to be made for spending a first-round pick uh, on uh, Sale or Kluber in the American League, Scherzer or Kershaw in the National League? Or is this a, uh, um, a choice best left to others? No, I, I think I could do it after, like, the f- first two picks. And I could almost justify Kershaw number one in an NL league, just because if he does throw a full season, he's going to probably carry your league. You're going to be in a good shape if he's healthy and can carry your league. And I don't know if there's a hitter that can really do that. I mean, Harper probably could, but I think I would, if I was in an NL draft, I think I would take Kershaw number one and then just end up with two hitters in the second round. Because like I said, I think his, his advantage would be the biggest. Um, in an AO one, I would probably have to wait at least after the first two to start considering them. But the hitting now, there seems to be like 30 reasonable hitters. I mean, there's a, the top two generally are um, considered to be yeah Trout and Altuve. But after that, it's really flat. Like I looked at a league, just did one and ran my valuations, and I looked at them and looked at them and. Charlie Blackman came in at number two, and just with kind of his balance and mix of between home runs and stolen bases and batting average, I actually took him number three overall in a 15-team league, and I took some questions for it, but it's like everyone else that did their evaluations. It's like, yep, he just, that's where he is, especially after Goldschmidt got the humidor put in. I think he was kind of the number three, but after that, there's just some of these guys' values are just the same. Yeah, that's an interesting development as well as the flattening of that of that uh, curve after those first two guys are off the board. There's lots of choices to be made, which makes it more interesting because it gives you a lot of flexibility in, especially if you're well down in the first round, you know, 8, 9, 10, like that, and you have choices to make based on what the people in front of you do, and it's not so much, it's not as chalk as it has been in past years where the, de- where the declining values were really well defined. Everybody knew what they were. Everybody knew what the first six or seven picks were going to be. Now, uh, depending on who's picking in front of you, you just don't know who you're going to have to choose from when your turn rolls around, and I think that makes it more interesting and more fun. Yeah, and I, actually, if I'm not one or two, I definitely would pr- prefer to drop down. Like, once I said with Blackman, it was so even, and some people may put Turner up there, um, and like I said that's perfectly fun fine, Arenado, like, it's just kind of what you want, but there at the end, you can kind of match your guys, if you have a guy that you can get two guys with steals, or you can kind of balance it, at the beginning, you pick a guy, and you just hope some balance comes back to you, you know what I'm saying? Right. It's like, you can get, but I mean, it's pretty reasonable to 
kind of expect later in the drafts to get Harper and maybe even Rizzo in the next round, and I just don't think that was happening. Just a lot of guys have kind of jumped up in the hitter-wise that have filled the void there at the top. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Jeff Zimmerman. And, uh, Jeff, uh, you've been in a lively Twitter debate the last few days about player injuries and specifically whether players can be considered injury-prone. Of course, we have examples of players who have significant DL time in the last uh, couple of years or many previous years, and some are already headed for the DL this year, like uh, Daniel Murphy and Troy Tulowitzki. But you said in that Twitter feed you don't believe past injuries do predict future injuries. How come you say that? thing I did is uh, it was actually in the Baseball HQ forecaster and there's an article on on the web is I just looked at it kind of got with Stanton like um, Stanton was given the injury prone label he can't stay healthy he's injury prone and then he goes out and has, plays 160 games what I looked at was guys that didn't have chronic injuries like I'm not dealing with David Wright like he's his back is gone um you know, someone like um, Albert Pujols, his ankles, his legs, they're done. So it's kind of like these guys have been injured just to the point. But if you just have the freak accidents and so forth, there was just no, no way to tell if the player was injury prone. It was just, and part of the problem is, is 40% of the hitters go on the deal every year. Well, the odds are there's, a good group of those are going to go on it two years in a row, just with the 40%. And then there's going to be a group of those that are going to do it for three years, just out of pure randomness. And then those guys are the ones that get the injury-prone label. I remember when Nelson Cruz was the most injury-prone player there was, and now he's not. Like, no one considers him to be, and he's, you know, six, seven years later. So it's kind of some of these guys get the label, and then they don't. And it's kind of like if they get the two years in a row, I could even see Mike Trout get it if he gets it again this year. If he misses like a month, Mike Trout's going to be injury prone next year. And But like I said, he, there's a good chance he could be. So like I said, I did the work in the forecaster, and it just there's no better chances if you had it for two years, if you were on the DL, you know, for two years in a row, your chances are just as good, you know, that next year as anyone else. So... I do think, like I said, there's some chronic issues, and I had to kind of remove some of those guys. But after that, it's just kind of a random random luck. So the fact that you removed guys like Pujols and uh, you mentioned David Wright means you do believe that there is such a thing as injury proneness, but it has more to do with the kind of injury the, and the chronicness of it rather than the uh, kind of random injuries that we get. Uh, what about pitchers and elbow and shoulder injuries? Because those seem to have a little more uh, staying power, if you will. Oh, pitcher arms are completely predictable. There's nothing else. Like I said, it's it's hitters. That was the only thing. Anytime a pitcher hurts his arm or even his core, that's another one I kind of get scared about, especially with center guard. But it's like there's so much going on. But it's like some of those guys that get hit with like a comebacker in the knee or something. It's like I'm not as afraid of those guys. But anytime stuff starts breaking, and especially in the shoulder, there's n- <sighs> the best thing right now in the recent trends is pitchers have been able to build up their shoulders and there's actually muscles and they hold out a lot better and that's part of the problem with the Tommy John epidemic there for a while is they weren't able to build up the elbow the problem is, is if the shoulder starts going out there's there's just nothing it, usually that's just an end of a pitcher's career or um, 
it's kind of downhill from there. So that's kind of the one I worry about the most if they spend some time with um, shoulder issues. But, no, any time an arm's an issue with a pitcher, their chances almost double for going on the DL. They're injured. It's not good. It is tempting sometimes uh, to dismiss the predictiveness of injury for hitters as confirmation bias. If I think a player is injury-prone, I can always find an example to explain it. But look at Troy Tulowitzki uh, in Toronto. He hasn't played more than 131 games in a season since 2011, so he's missing minimum 30 games a year. And in those six seasons, he's uh, had three in the high 120s, but three in the like much lower than that, 47, 91, 66, including 66 last year. And he's starting the year on the DL this year. How confident would you be about Troy Tulowitzki as an example that he can uh, recover in this season and uh, get enough um, games and plate appearances to be a difference maker? I would say, with him, I'm not very good. I think I went, kind of gave me a heads up, you're going to bring him up and look at this stuff. He's kind of one where I wouldn't be surprised if there's something chronic because it's all, like, leg-related, hip and leg. All of his stuff is that way, that there's something messed up permanently there. And I wouldn't take a chance on it. And that's something I said, too. It's, I'm kind of worried with, like, Camel, um, Miguel Cabrera. Like, he's complaining about his back. He just didn't hit for any power. His back could just be done. I mean, it's not like a freaking injury or anything. Like, it's a major problem. So it's kind of up to the own, um, each individual person. And in Tulowitzki's case, I would probably make the call, like, I'm never going to give him more than 120 games. He just hasn't been able to show that. But like I said, I think there, I think his legs are kind of just like with Albert Pohlholz, like, just done at this point. Like, they have just been injured too much, and it's not like kind of – freak stuff getting hit by the face or just a hamstring pull or I mean it's a hamstring pull is not freak but it's a freak accident but it's just something that's going to happen every once in a while or run into a wall so I just um it's just one of those deals where you kind of have to just make your own calls on it but I I the more I looked at it and the more the information I found is I just kind of target these guys they really get devalued and there's just some of the better buys that are out there. So um, A.J. Pollock's a guy I'm going to probably be targeting. This sh- I've been targeting um, Greg Bird is another one. These guys that spent a lot of time on the DL, but um, in the last couple of years, and they get the um, F grade at the forecaster, and it's kind of like, well, everyone's down on him, but there's just no reason they can't play 160 games, so um, I'll go with it. I was looking at players like that as well, and it started me thinking that maybe when we start characterizing injuries, maybe there needs to be two separate categories of injuries, which is uh, freak or unexpected injuries versus the kind of injuries that tend to be chronic, which might help us better understand not injuries, whether they're going to happen, but but the kind of injuries that are likelier, likelier to happen and start separating the players into two camps, those who have been put on the DL for injuries that we don't regard as repeatable or chronic and those who do. And, and I think Miguel Cabrera is a great example because... You know, the reason he hits the ball hard when you look at, at at a player like him is that he generates tremendous torque through his hips and back. And therefore, when you hear about a back problem, a lower back problem for a player like that who's generating such enormous torque and power through that part of his body, you have to start thinking, well, 
either he has to cut down on the torque to ease up on his back, which which affects his ability to swing hard, or he keeps swinging hard and eventually something in there has got to give way because he's just using it so aggressively and so powerfully that the tissues just can't keep up. And uh, I think those are the kind of guys that we have to be able to separate out the the chronic from the from the sort of uh, intermittent, if you will. Yeah, and one other guy that's on that cusp is um, Michael Brantley. I'm not sure if his shoulder's 100%, and he's kind of been in and out. It, I think this year will tell a lot. I'm kind of, I mean, he's still, I think he's banged up right now, which doesn't help the cause, but I, I don't think he may not be 100%. Like, he's just, it's, he, he's, he's one like Miguel Cabrera. It's like, you guys kind of got to turn it around this year or, you know, just going to be too many questions on the same injury, you know, and your production's down, and it's just like, well, we're just going to have to move how we value you a lot lower. Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Jeff Zimmerman. And, Jeff, you had a great study at BaseballHQ.com a little earlier about how prospects get promoted and when. Uh, before we start, I thought it was interesting where you got the idea. It was in your 2017 Tout Wars Mix draft. You had, you did really well in that year. Uh, you were thinking about Yoan Moncada versus Cody Bellinger, and you preferred Bellinger, which turned out to be the correct call and helped your team. But you said in the article, the results were right, but the process might not have been. What happened? I had looked back at the previous winners of Tout Wars, and most of them won because they got a major rookie that came in and really helped them out. And I was like, okay, I need to start figuring out which rookies I'm going to target, at least have one on my bench that if I get them, not guaranteed to win or lose because of them, but I'm going to at least try to figure out the top guy. And the more I was looking at it, my process with Bellinger over Makata was, I thought the Dodgers were going to be in contention, and he was more likely to be called up because they want to win. And the White Sox are kind of just rebuilt their rebuilding, to be not, just to say it nicely. And so I was like, there's going to be no hurry for him to come up. And I was like, I want the production. I want to see if he's going to come up and play, and can he do it right away? And then so that was my rationing, and I was like, well, do competitive teams bring up their guys earlier. So that was part of the process was one of my inputs when I started looking at the data. It is a little bit, that part of it. So it kind of justified it. But the biggest thing I found out is it's just the last level that they were at. If they played last year AAA, it's like over 90% chance that they're going to get promoted. Most of the guys that didn't get promoted were hurt in some ways. It was almost all of them had an injury. There's like two guys that were the exception. So if you're in AAA, you're a top 100 prospect, you're going to get to the majors sometime the next year. There's a few other variables with it, but that's that was the biggest thing. And then it, once you, if you end the season at AA, you you're on chances around 50%. And that's one where if you're, and that's for both hitters and pitchers, if you're a higher-end prospect, you'll get promoted more likely. If you're kind of in that bottom half of the hundred, you may have to spend some more spend some more time at Double A and then Triple A. But if you're below Double A, the chances of getting promoted are ten percent or less. I mean, it just really drops down. So those guys, a few of them do. Again, it's the top guys, and the other thing to look for is the age. Is look for the college players. Is they're the ones that Chris Bryant's that get brought up quick. Um, Bryce Harper's. So look or. 
he was actually high school, but sort of college. Yeah. I mean, he's about the one-year JUCO, but it's kind of those really top guys, but also the college ones where they don't want any more development. Like, this guy's developed. Let's get him to the majors. Jeff, you mentioned this idea of uh, whether the team needs the player, and of course the teams nowadays are so concerned with uh, delaying the start of the service clock because it allows them that extra year of control and so forth. Is that still something we need to be aware of when we're looking at, say, uh, if you've got a choice between Victor Robles, who with the context of Washington and the outfield problems they're having, appears more likely to be uh, on the roster to start or, or early on versus uh, Ronald Acuna down in uh, Atlanta, and Atlanta really for, for now at least doesn't look like they're in any hurry to, to get started uh, competing for playoff spots, should we rethink that whole uh, idea about uh, service clocks? I think it really comes down to the teams. If they're wanting to win, I think with this Robles thing, I think he's the right call. He was one I was going to target. And the main thing I've liked with Robles is, and it, it's a perfect example with the Nats, is an outfielder needs one outfielder of the three to get hurt. If, it, if you're a third baseman or just a first baseman, you only have like one way to the majors is one guy struggling. And that was kind of my problem last year with Bellinger's. I didn't know if he could play outfield. It was kind of, I was reading reports and it's like, well, if you're the backup first baseman and outfielder, I mean, you just need one of these four guys to go down and they weren't exactly the most set players. So I was like, that's kind of why I liked him. And um, that's kind of why I like Robles and, even before this, but now I'm not going to have a chance to get it. Another guy I might be targeting is um, Kyle Tucker out of Houston. He's a great player. Um, but, again, Houston is so loaded with even other players that it's tough to see him get playing time. But, it's, it's like I said, I kind of want the difference maker, which I think Tucker is. It's just if he can get the chance. So um, it's... It's kind of a gamble, but it's one of these deals where at least now, after looking at it, it's like, well, here's what my odds are, and I can kind of live with that and kind of know when, I, when to expect the guy to come up. Like I, in the article, I went through when their normal call-up times are, and usually these top 100 guys, they made it to AAA. They'll be up by the All-Star break. It's like usually they'll at least give them past the July 2 date, and it's like or the um, Super 2 date, which is usually um, – June 1st, and that's like, okay, now you're up. You did develop a process to assess the chances, and I should repeat, this is only for top 100-level prospects. You're not talking about every guy in the minor leagues, uh, but you developed a different process for position players versus pitchers. Maybe you could walk us briefly through both. I thought it would be different, <laughs> and it worked out to be in the same. The percentages were almost identical, Um was the, you know, almost everyone from AAA and then 50% and then, like, no one. Um, I kind of thought the pitchers would get advanced a little bit more. That's kind of even why I separate, separated it out initially. And um, the one thing I did find with pitchers is their rates were a little bit lower in each case, but it was all based off injuries. It was some guy was coming up and made it AAA, and then he had Tommy John surgery, so it took him a couple more years. So it, it's kind of the tin snap bit where it's just like, well... You know, it's they're not a. It's just a higher chance of getting hurt and being lost for the whole season. I mean, the hitters would get hurt, but it's 15 days, 20 days. Pitcher, you know, a lot of them had Tommy John, so then they're out. Like Honeywell will look really bad. Like it's go. It took him like three years after he got to AAA to 
get in the majors, but it's like, well, when you have Tommy John surgery in the meantime, it's not, you know, it just doesn't look good. So I I was really, really surprised the numbers for both were the same. Like I said, I really thought pitchers would get advanced more, but after looking at it, um, it doesn't seem to be the case. Well, it does seem to stand to reason, though. You mentioned like an outfielder has a one in three chance of having the guy in front of him at the major league level um, struggle or be hurt. And in pitchers, gosh, how many? I mean, every pitcher ends up on the DL during the year, so you'd think that they'd be pouring up from the minor leagues. And I think, don't you, that uh, that's probably going to increase as uh, teams start rejigging how they use pitchers. They're, they may just put them on the 10-day vacation, as they call it, and, and need a guy to come up and maybe get a chance to get a start and impress and, and stick. There's a lot. It seems like increasingly there are more paths to the major leagues for prospect pitchers just because of the way that pitchers are now being managed. Yes, and I think one of the deal is a a bias or it's a problem, I don't want to even call it that with prospect lists in general, is that they only put starters on it, is I think sometimes we'll see relievers might be getting advanced a little bit quicker, and they may get the bump up a little bit faster than a starter. Like they're wanting to make sure the starters can throw all three of his pitches and be consistent, and it's like, oh, you know, you can't throw, you know, you're not going to be a starter, but you can still throw 97 miles an hour with a devastating slider, get to the majors. But none of those guys, really almost no reliever is on a prospect list. So I kind of think like some of these guys that are really good are getting advanced sooner, but it's just when you look at prospect lists, I don't even know if there is a reliever on any list this year. I mean, that's, it's just something you just don't see. Yeah, and maybe that's an idea whose time has come. Uh, before we uh, leave this segment, Jeff, uh, you mentioned Robles, you mentioned uh, Kyle Tucker in Houston. Can you give us a picture or two you think uh, fits the bill that could be called up earlier rather than later and maybe have a pretty solid impact? I loved Honeywell until he got hurt. Um, yeah. Kopech, I think, is going to be great out of the White Sox. I don't know how long they can hold him back. So he's one, I think he's going to be up. Um, the, the two, um, Austin Meadows is also one I kind of like. And I also like Glass now. He came up and really struggled, but then went back to AAA and did great to end the season. He's one I want to kind of see how he starts the season at. Is, and he's kind of one where it's like he's not, you know, an unseen prospect, but it, I guess he might still have prospect status. But if he's bad, I just cut him. I think he's going to kind of be like a reserve round pick, and if he's good, I've got him. I mean, he's kind of one of these guys, like, we don't know how good he's going to be, so we'll take a chance, and then the chance is wrong. You know, he still doesn't have any control, then just drop him and try to find someone else. Jeff, this has already been super interesting and very enlightening. Can you come back a little later on in the show? Yeah, that sounds great. Jeff Zimmerman writes for Rotographs, the Hardball Times, Rotowire, Baseball America, and Baseball HQ, and he writes ba research and analysis articles for Baseball HQ as well. Jeff will be back a little later on if he can find the time. <laughs> when we return, our Baseball HQ commentaries coming up, the Minor League Minute, Frequent Flyer, and Position Previews. But right now it's the time in the show when I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say with confidence BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Listen to this. In a research piece, Nick Trojanowski looks at the importance of where runners are stranded in assessing pitchers. In gaming, our old friend Matt Beagle has a points league draft guide for pitchers. 
And in Facts and Flukes, Brant Chesser evaluates Whit Merrifield, Edwin Diaz, Nomer Mazzara, Jacob Faria, and Mikey Matuk. And that's just three articles among literally dozens. Just a small sampling of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. And why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Now it's time for our League Watch News reports. We have Jock Thompson on deck with the American League. And leading off, it's the National League Report and Baseball HQ analyst Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. Free agent starter Jake Arrieta signed for three years and 75 million bucks with the Philadelphia Phillies, a nice little payday. Phil Hertz covered the story for BaseballHQ.com's Playing Time Today. What do we expect from Jake Arrieta in the sometimes inaptly named City of Brotherly Love? Yes, it's, you know, it could be a... Um a rough transition from for Arietta into Philadelphia. He 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 was actually he was down last year. It was a down season. It wasn't the kind of uh, uh, the kind of season we got from him in 2014 and 2015. Uh, his ERA jumped up. His xERA jumped up. Uh, skills were moving in the wrong direction. So uh, a bit of a shaky season. A good time, I guess, for him to hit free agency and actually get some money. Uh, and, and then heading to a, a ballpark that could be of some concern. Uh, one of the big concerns last year was 1.2 home runs per nine innings, and and Citizens Bank Ballpark is not friendly to pitchers in terms of, of being a home run venue. So uh, every year's going to have to manage to keep the ball in the park in Philadelphia. But all in all, looks like a uh, he could be a very solid uh, fantasy get for you. Uh, three years ago, you might have built your team around him. Uh, now he's more like a fourth or fifth pitcher, I think, on a fantasy staff. Who uh, gets affected as far as the rotation is concerned in Philadelphia? I, I see some arms out there that look fairly interesting. Uh, I like Nick Pavetta, for one, and uh, Vincent Velasquez has always been something of an enigma. So what goes on in the rotation in Philly? Well, we talked, I think, a week ago about the, about four guys competing for, for three slots. Now we've got four guys competing for two spots. So we've got uh, Velasquez, we've got uh, Pavetta, we've got Ben Lively, uh, we've got Jared Eikhoff. Uh, all, all competing for now two spots instead of three. Uh, and so a couple of those guys are going to wind up back in the bullpen uh, or if they have minor league options left, headed back to the minors. I've always thought Vincent Velasquez would make a terrific bullpen arm, uh, but I guess we'll see. Uh, Cincinnati Reds right-hander Anthony DeSclafani is dealing with a strained oblique muscle, and he hasn't been given a timetable for his return. Got to hate those core muscle things. Uh, he'll start the year on the DL. He won't be back until late April, they say, maybe even later. Uh, Tom Kephart covering the story for playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. So what's going to happen with this injury? Uh, how does it affect already less-than-stellar Cincinnati rotation? Well, Cincinnati has some very good arms competing for the back end of their rotation, and uh, whereas it looked like they would um, uh, they would have uh, two spots available, now it looks like they may have three spots available at the end of their rotation, at least to start the year. And they've got some some good arms out there: uh, Tyler Mall, Sal Romano. Uh, Sal Romano's had a very fine spring. Tyler Mall's had a good spring. Amir Garrett, Robert Stevenson. Uh, three of those guys are likely to end up in the starting rotation. All could have, I think, fantasy uh, fantasy uh, appeal uh, if you can get them late in a draft. I like uh, Romano's got a lot of ground ball potential, and uh, in Cincinnati, that's uh, super important. That park is not at all friendly on the home run front for pitchers. Yes, it does. Uh, Romano does have a lot of ground ball potential and pitched very well in August and September, uh, and so he was already a front runner for one of those spots. 
Uh, Tiger Mall uh, struggled late, late, but has been striking out a lot of batters in spring training. Uh, so, you know, we, we've got several possibilities there, and, and they're guys that I would certainly not hesitate to pick up uh, were I building a rotation if I could get them late in a draft, and that seems likely at this point. Yeah, that's the beauty of uh, situations like Cincinnati. The team's not that good. The park is very unfriendly to pitchers in general. Uh, sometimes those guys fall a little farther than they ought to, and it could be worth uh, looking at, as you said, as you get later into your draft or towards the end game in your auction. Save a dollar or two. Uh, likely St. Louis closer Luke Gregerson also has a problem with his ob- oblique muscle. Boy, you got to hate those issues with the core. Uh, Phil Hurts on the story for playing time today. Uh, manager Mike Matheny in St. Louis said Gregerson, they looked at him, the trainers, the doctors, and uh, I'm quoting here, it came back relatively clean, but it's something still to be cautious about. And boy, when you hear cautious when you're talking about a closer, that should set off some alarm bells, uh, some save opportunities that owners are always looking for in these closer situations. Who gets those save opportunities for the Cardinals if Gregerson can't answer the bell? The guy that I would look at right away, right off the bat, is Dominic Leone. Dominic Leone, we already got him projected for 16 saves out of the St. Louis bullpen. Uh, pitched very, very well last season. Uh, what, what, what Dominic Leone did last year was a 2.56 ERA, 1.05 whip, uh, outstanding Dom, 10.4 Dom, 2.9 control, 125 BPV. All very, very fine numbers. And, uh, with Gregerson gone at this point, Leon is the guy that I would kind of handicap, I think, uh, as likely to get those initial save opportunities. And if he pitches the way he did last season, he could take uh, really take the job and run with it. Right now, BaseballHQ.com has uh, updated the St. Louis team um, depth charts to give Leon 35% of the saves, with Luke Gregerson still in line for 50%. But boy, if uh, if Gregerson can't start the season, and this is this is a scenario that I've been running through my mind. If Gregerson's on the shelf even for a couple of weeks and Leon goes out there and just kills, uh, maybe when Gregerson comes back, there's no job to be had. Yeah, that's possible. And for for people going into drafts this weekend, this is kind of an ongoing story. Uh, as you said, we have just updated our percentages in terms of the saves that, that Dominic Leon might get. He's the kind of guy you might pick up easily uh, late in a draft, later than you might expect otherwise, uh, depending upon how your, your league mates are up with the news. Uh, and so could be a real get uh, for a National League bullpen. Nick, I wonder, have you ever read the uh, Thomas Wolfe novel, You Can't Go Home Again? I have not read that one, no. Well, apparently neither has Carlos Gonzalez because he's going home again. Back to Colorado. <laughs> he is indeed. Uh, it's one of those, you know, it's one of those really interesting situations that you uh, that you look at and think, you know, these guys turn down qualified offers, they turn down of various other offers, and then they wind up right back where they started in a one-year contract that's probably paying them less than they uh, than they would have gotten had they taken the qualifying offer uh, earlier on. Uh, but uh, anyway, yeah, Carlos Gonzalez is going back to Colorado uh, in a one-year in a one-year contract, and uh, you know I kind of like those one-year contracts. It really seems the guys are likely to be motivated heading into those things and uh, may put up a better season than they than they might otherwise, just a tad because they've got that motivation to fight for a uh, uh, a longer contract uh, next season. Yeah, I, I, I'm, uh, I'm a little dubious myself about that, that whole contract year thing because uh, all the research I've seen says that, you know, as much as it seems to make sense, 
you still got to go out there and hit the hit the ball, and then the guy who's throwing it doesn't say, "Hey, you're you're on your last year of your contract. I should help you out." Uh, but leaving that aside, the problem that I see here is that the Rockies already seem to have more than enough outfielders and and first baseman for that matter. So, what does this signing mean for Gonzalez in terms of playing time and for the outfield situation in Denver? Yeah, I mean it's uh, you know it, it really is a. Uh uh, a bit of a mess out there at this point, which because they they are overloaded. They've got uh, now have a a uh, a wealth of outfielders to deal with. Uh, Charlie Blackman's not going anywhere. He's he's the fixture in center field. Uh, David Dahl probably is going to get first crack at right field. Uh, Gerardo Parra is coming off a, an excellent year. Um, what Gonzalez' presence is likely to do is delay uh, Ramiel Tapia's uh, ascendance as the fourth outfielder. Uh, maybe. Uh, Gonzalez can move to first base, but then uh, uh, Ryan McMahon is in the picture, and so is Ian Desmond. So um, it remains to be seen exactly what's going to happen with Carlos Gonzalez. I wouldn't be surprised that um, uh, that if he doesn't get off to a st- to a, a strong start, uh, that he becomes a, a really a bench bat for Colorado with the number of other possibilities they've got out there. I would not be paying a lot for Carlos Gonzalez in current drafts. Yeah, I, I like the skills at one time, but he's 32 years old now. There's lots of competition for playing time. I think you have to proceed with caution, but here's a little bit of speculation that I'll offer you. If uh, Colorado falls out of the picture, they could get a, a, a huge amount of talent for Charlie Blackman. And I wonder if maybe somewhere in the back of somebody's mind, they're thinking, you know, if, if things don't go well for us this year, maybe this is our time to cash in that particular chip and if you're in a league that uh, a national league only that doesn't allow you to keep stats of a guy traded to the other league um, maybe just keep that in the back of your mind before you go the extra dollar on charlie blackman i wonder if there's if colorado is setting up for a situation that's possible i mean they certainly have they certainly have uh, younger guys that they could move into uh into various roles and so uh, that would be a possibility you're right charlie blackman would be worth a whole lot uh, if he were traded elsewhere. And Blackman's no spring chicken either. So, uh, it might, uh, if Colorado decides to go with the youth movement, you mentioned Ryan McMahon in AAA, uh, I think, uh, OPS over a thousand in Albuquerque. Boy, they've got some, some talent there that they could build around and, and, uh, at a certain point, if you think your window's two years away or whatever they might decide it is, uh, you mentioned also Ramel Tapia, another guy that they might want to figure out how he's going to get some playing time. All of a sudden, those older, expensive guys start to become a little too old, a little too expensive, and uh, therefore expendable. That's true. But if you, but the other, the other thing to keep in mind is that a year ago, Colorado uh, did very, very well. It came very, very close. And so it's one of those things where uh, they really could compete and may not drop out early. I should say that BaseballHQ.com's uh, team analysts have given uh, Carlos Gonzalez a little over 400 at-bats for 2018, so they seem to believe, and these are guys who look at these teams very closely and stay on top of them, uh, they seem to think that Carlos Gonzalez is going to be a reasonably productive guy uh, with 401 at-bats. That's not bad, and 17 home runs, he's going to bat 270 or so. Yeah, you could do worse. Finally, Nick, our Buyer's Guides columnists have been focusing this week on what they call gambles, which means players they believe carry greater risk than you might want of being overvalued or overdrafted. Stephen Nickrand, uh, excellent columnist, writes the Batter's Buyer's Guide, and he came up with a long list of players and his... uh, 
His method was to look at guys who earned more than $5 last year but had base performance values under 25 which is pretty poor. Uh, I saw Jonathan VR at the top of the list. I saw Ian Happ. I saw Ian Desmond. I saw a bunch of other guys not named Ian. And uh, one name that caught my eye was the Phillies outfielder Nick Williams. And I've read here and there that Williams, some people think he's a bit of a sleeper with some breakout potential. What does Steven say about Nick Williams? Well, Stephen thinks Nick Williams is a gamble rather than a sleeper. I mean, Nick Williams had a, uh, he certainly has some tools. He gave pretty good value last season. Uh, 288 batting average, 12 home runs, 55 RBIs, all in only 313 at bats. So those are good numbers. But he had a very friendly hit rate, 38% hit rate. Uh, and his plate discipline was not really very good. Only a 6% walk rate, a 69% contact rate. You don't expect a 288 batting average with a contact rate that low, 0.21i. So, this guy's uh, high hit rate was hiding some warts, uh, and those warts could uh, certainly uh, jump up to bite him in his in his uh, this current season. And he's also a ground ball hitter, fifty percent ground ball rate. So uh, he can't be be he's not likely to recapture the home run pace he had last season. Uh, really big holes in his swing. He's got good speed, but he's got to get on base more than he is now to take advantage of that. Uh, I'd be a little leery of Nick Williams. I agree with Stephen in this case. Uh, I would slide Nick Williams further down my draft list. Good results last year. Could have a, a, a maybe an ideal guy for a sophomore slump. Yeah, and again, they have some options out there with Aaron Altair particularly, uh, and they have that the whole uh, Carlos Santana, Reese Hoskins thing going on, so there's going to be some movement in the outfield out there. But I agree with you and with Steven here. And one other thing that catches my eye, you mentioned that he's got the ground ball tilt, which mitigates against him repeating even a 12-home run pace. Uh, in a full year, it'd be probably more like 20. But not only that, his hard contact index is under 100. He's under league average for putting the ball in play with uh, some pace, and that means uh, ordinarily a ground ball guy has a better chance at a batting average uh, that you like because you know ground balls sneak through a little more often than, than fly balls do. But all of a sudden, if you look at the combination of soft contact and ground balls, not so good. No, right. I agree with you. Not so good. Soft contact, lots of ground balls. Um the kind of, of guy who could easily disappoint, I think, this upcoming season. And with the number of, of uh, players they have available and, and good players for those outfield spots, the kind of guy who could land on the bench very quickly. Or be traded. Uh, back when Carlos Santana signed in Philadelphia, analyst uh, Phil Hertz said, well, he's going to play first base. They're going to push Reese Hoskins, as I said, out to left field. All of a sudden, you've got Williams and Aaron Altair fighting it out for right field or sharing the job. And Williams is on the right side of a platoon in that case, but Phil also said one of these guys or maybe uh, somebody else is going to get traded out there. What do you think of that? Well, that's certainly a possibility. I mean, uh, Philadelphia has been making some moves and, and trying to position themselves to actually compete this season, unlike some other teams out there, and so they, they could have more moves to make. All right, Nick, thanks very much for helping us out with the National League again, and we'll catch up with you again in a week's time. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst with BaseballHQ.com and our man on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's turn to the American League and Baseball HQ writer and director of news and analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to the show. Hi, PD. Good to be here, as usual. 
Lots of free agent stragglers starting to come into uh, contracts in the American League, uh, starting in Oakland, where the A's have got a, what looks like a pretty good deal signing Jonathan Lucroy to a one-year deal for less than $7 bucks. Uh, Rod Truesdell covered this for Playing Time today at BaseballHQ.com. How do you think this all plays out? You know, I've been saying, um, or I've commented this spring in my uh, Playing Time Tomorrow space that the Oakland catching outlook really looked fluid and this looks like a really good inexpensive sign for the A's for several reasons first they didn't have any any depth behind uh, 2017 rookie Bruce Maxwell who of course now has some legal issues and unless I'm mistaken a court date hanging over his head this spring and that had the the real potential of injecting some chaos into the situation let alone the, the question as to how Maxwell was going to react to all of this but the A's also have a really young rotation with more really good rotation prospects on the way this year. And even with the recent drop-off, LaCroix is still highly regarded as a handler pitcher. So particularly at the depressed salaries that this year's, as you say, free agent stragglers are coming in for, this works pretty well for the A's. Yeah, it's something I hadn't thought of, Jock, uh, but... Uh, Lucroy could add some value to that A's rotation, and I know that some uh, experts have been saying the A's rotation has a few sneaky sleepers in it as it was, and maybe we need to notch them all up a dollar or two based on the signing of the catcher rather than anything else that's gone on. Yeah, um, obviously everyone likes Sean Manaya a little bit. I I like him uh, uh, even with his off year last year. After that, I think there's a lot of back of the rotation question marks. But you're right, there's some guys that could find value. I think the best is yet to come. Like I said, I saw A.J. Puck uh, down in in spring training. I think he's going to be terrific, and I think he's going to be up this year. And and I think having LaCroix behind the plate to guide him along is certainly going to help. But what about offensively? That's the big question. We're always looking for catchers who can contribute. And uh, over the last three seasons, Lou Croy's been so-so one year, a really good in year in 2016, 24 home runs, then not so good again last year. And that's in Texas and Colorado, two pretty good offensive parks. What's going to happen with, uh, with Jonathan Lou Croy from an offensive standpoint playing in that cavernous stadium in Oakland? Now you're right. Lou Croy's power and his hard contact rate kind of fell through the floor last year, even though he was in these terrific hitting parks. His actual contact rate was at a, at a year high. I don't think we can rule out a partial rebound from his six home run, 265 batting average last year. Um, even in pitcher-friendly Oakland, um, the nice thing is that he's going to get uh, uh, a lot of at-bats in a pretty decent lineup. Uh, Oakland is at least good offensively, and at least for the first part of the season. And, and giving the bleak catching out uh, outlook in fantasy. If he can uptick from this, you know, it's probably worth a modest bid. I really wonder whether his power is coming back uh, after last year, unless there was some kind of an injury, because boy, those numbers look awful. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't return on a, on, uh, I wouldn't bet on his return to um, double digit earnings, but uh, I think his batting average and counting stats could certainly tick up. Well, one thing I noticed when I look at uh, the historical record for Jonathan Lucroy is you mentioned his hard contact index has plummeted to way below league average from, uh, you know, a goodly, a goodly size above league average for the last few years. And uh, all of a sudden, he's all the way down to 80 at the same time as his contact rate by itself has skyrocketed to 88. And the way hard contact works is you multiply contact by hard hitness. This seems to mean he's been hitting the ball, at least last year, a lot less often with any pace. Yeah, and he was hitting it on the ground a lot, and uh, let's face it, his speed isn't that great. It's it's pretty average. Uh, you really got to wonder if an injury is involved. So um, so maybe if it was, maybe he does make a a, a, a big rebound. But uh, 
boy, um, it, it's it's it, it's a tough call here. Again, uh, I think he's worth a, a a modest extra dollar if you need catching, and most most fantasy owners do. So um, we'll see what happens. One other thing about Jonathan Lucroy, uh, Jock, uh, over the last since 2011, listen to these uh, OPS marks. In 2011, in the 700s, then the 800s, then the 700s, then the 800s, then the 700s, then the 800s. Last year in the 700s, could there be an 800 OPS in Jonathan Lucroy's future for this year? Yeah, exactly. Uh, I'll tell you what, uh, uh, he's playing in the wrong park for it because Oakland uh, Oakland isn't kind to uh, to, to power hitters, or at least it hasn't been uh, recently, but uh, it's a pretty good lineup they're in, so who knows? We're projecting 400 at-bats, around uh, 10 home runs, maybe 40 runs scored, 40 RBIs, a couple of bags, and a 250 batting average, so four or five bucks worth, I guess. I bet he goes for more than that, though. Uh, over in Kansas City, the Rays re-signed third baseman Mike Moustakas, who made a pretty significant error not signing a lot earlier when the club offered him a lot more money. This is a real favorable deal for Kansas City. Matt Dodge looked at this in playing time today. What's the outlook for Mike Moustakas, and what is the outlook for the Kansas City playing time mix now that he's back in the fold yeah this really speaks to the bargain that Mustakas came in at uh, 5.5 million uh, with a 15 million dollar option uh, doubtful that that'll be uh, picked up uh, um, one million dollar buyout thing and Kansas City is rebuilding too um, so it, it also speaks to how little confidence they have in names like Chesler Cuthbert and Hunter Dozier given that it helps push Cuthbert back to a bench role and reportedly Dozier back to the minors where he's going to work at becoming a first baseman. Um, Moose's 2017 was was really good, career high, what, uh, 30, 38 home runs, something like that. Yep. Um, probably not a complete repeat uh, for fantasy value, particularly given a weak, weaker lineup. Uh, but more of the same if he can keep hitting fly balls. His power has actually really been on the upswing for four seasons, and his plate skills look pretty stable. Interestingly enough, uh, his co- hard contact index went down quite a bit last year, even as his home run rate was going up, although his home run per fly ball rate was staying the same. So he was uh, hitting more fly balls last year. Could be a loft adjustment that we've heard about so many players making. And if it's a permanent change, there's no reason that uh, Mike Moustakis couldn't hit at least 30 this year, wouldn't you think? Yeah, that's, that's kind of my take, too. He might be hard-pressed to hit 38, but uh, yeah, I would, I, would, I would look for a 30 home run year from Moustakis. We're projecting 34 at Baseball HQ on a $17 season for 5 by 5 purposes. Uh, the Yankees also went into the bargain basement on free agents, not like them in years past. Uh, they signed Neil Walker, the second baseman, uh, versatile utility type guy, for a fairly low $5 million one-year contract. Looks like a pretty good deal, but again, there are some playing time ramifications. Uh, Matt Dodge wrote about this at Baseball HQ's playing time today. What's going on with the Neil Walker signing in New York? A yeah, great deal for the Yankees, and and uh, I've always liked Walker. I thought he's been a pretty consistent and overlooked player for some mediocre teams uh, or or not great teams. He's he's averaged close to 20 home runs a year for the past four years, um, and, and it looks like a good deal for Walker owners, at least for the first half of the season, since he's probably going to slot in at second base to begin. He's going to be a left-handed hitter in hitter-friendly Yankee Stadium with that short porch. He's going to be in a great offensive lineup, uh, and it certainly has some playing time impact given the uh, Ronald Torres and, and rookie Glaber Torres and Tyler Wade were all fighting for second base at bats this spring. Um, they're probably going to be left out in the cold. I know Torres and, uh, and Wade are probably headed back for the minors. But longer term, it's interesting. I see this as a potential issue for Walker, who's 
averaged 400 at-bats for the past two seasons, and he handles right-handed hitters better than lefties, and he's, he's been no stranger to the DL. If he takes some time off, it wouldn't surprise me to see his role change when he comes back, particularly if one of those kids comes up and lights it up in his absence. Or even if New York decides to promote third base prodigy Miguel Andahar and move uh, Drury, Brandon Drury, over to second base. The bottom line here is the Yankees have a whole bunch of depth and the situation is fluid. So any, any kind of downtime or blip by Walker could change things. Well, Walker could lose playing time, of course, if he has that short DL stint you're thinking of. One of these kids could come in and light it up and uh, that would probably cost Walker some or maybe even all of his playing time, a one-year contract, they could easily write him off and just cut him. But what about the other side of the coin? What if Walker stays relatively healthy all year? That could have implications for bidding on the youngsters this draft season. Could a healthy Neil Walker keep those young prospects in the minors all year? Yeah, you know, he he actually could because it's the best hitting environment he's ever played in. Um, That short porch is amazing. He's going to get pitched to. We project him for 273 at-bats, which projects my fears, but there's always that upside. We're, we're looking at a big risk, big reward guy here right now. I was just looking at that same thing, 273 at-bats, 23 homers, I mean 12 homers, uh, 39 runs, 34 RBIs, but if you double it to 546 at-bats, which he's had close to in some of past years, all of a sudden you're looking at 24 homers, 70 RBIs, 70 runs scored, a 270-ish batting average. You could have yourself a 12 to $15 player, and that, depending on how the bidding goes, might not cost you near that much. Yep, absolutely. Do you feel lucky? Minnesota continued a busy offseason and a very effective one, I have to say, signing free agent starting pitcher Lance Lynn to a one-year deal. He apparently turned down a two-year deal with Minnesota. Rick Green wrote about it for Playing Time Today at BaseballHQ.com. Considering that the Twins had already acquired Jake Odorizzi, what does the Lynn signing do to the Twins' rotation, and what do you think his outlook is in Minnesota for 2018? Well, for starters, it pushes the likes of uh, Adalberto Mejia, Aaron Slegers, and Phil Hughes back to long relief and rotation depth status, which is a good thing for the Twins, who clearly view themselves as contenders. Lynn is a a pretty polarizing guy, fantasy-wise. He obviously had a fine 2017 comeback following Tommy John surgery, 11 wins, 343 ERA, but his peripherals weren't great, and he gave up more home runs than he normally does. Bush Stadium in St. Louis in the National League is a lot more pitcher-friendly, obviously, than Target Field in the American League, so I would suspect that both his ERA and whip are going to rise some this year. Uh, he's playing with a good club, though, and, and it looks like he could eat innings. I, I say moderate value. I probably like him a little more than I should. Um, um, I don't know. What do you think? You hope that he's going to re- reclaim that uh, status he had in his good year with uh, with St. Louis, but obviously post-Tommy John is something of a concern for anybody who's looking at it. I don't know. I, I think the Twins have options if Lynn uh, doesn't do super well. If the Twins fall out of the race, there's a possibility that he could be a trade guy because he's only on that one-year deal. Uh, I like Lance Lynn. I don't like him like $20 worth. I like him $10 worth, and I don't know that that's going to get it. Uh, I'm, I'm very curious to see how Lance Lynn does, but it's kind of interesting from the Twins' point of view that it looks like they're really throwing the dice on going for playoff status this year and uh, seeing what they can do. Yeah, I think you and I are in the same ballpark, and I think this was a good signing. It was a one-year deal for $12 million. Why not? The rest of your rotation, or the, the, the depth that you just consigned, isn't all that good in his place, and, and Ling gives him at least a chance. 
Yeah, and uh, you know, in a rotation that already has Jose Barrios uh, at the top, Irvin Santana had a good year last year, and of course, a lot of people say it was kind of fluky, but I I think he was better than people give him credit for. All of a sudden, the rotation, which at the start of the year looked like something of a weakness for Minnesota, may not be exactly a strength, but it's not a weakness either. It's kind of just average at this point, but that's a step up for them. Yeah, can certainly can certainly uh, contend for a wild card. Uh, that's for sure. And finally, Jock, I've been monitoring Shohei Otani's bid to become the Babe Ruth of the 21st century. And on the hitting side so far, at least, he hasn't looked so much Babe Ruth as my Aunt Ruth. It just looks overmatched to me. Uh, you've seen him a lot. What's your point of view here? Yeah, he, he didn't look great in uh, in Phoenix when I saw him. I saw him hit six or seven times, and, and nothing's changed since I've been back. I've watched him a little on TV here. He is two for 20. Um, he's at least... Uh, stop striking out as much. He's got seven strikeouts and there's 20 at-bats. Uh, he's moving his feet a lot. Uh, this this doesn't look great. Now, granted, it's only two weeks, two-plus weeks in, and there's another two weeks to go, maybe. Uh, um, it, it, it's going to be interesting. Unless a light somehow goes on quickly, I think the Angels are in a pickle as to how to handle this hitting side. Uh, I don't know where it's coming from, but there's even talk surfacing of starting him out in the minors, so I'm not sure how that happens given all the hoopla that's been going on. So the next couple of weeks should be interesting to watch. I've read reports, more like rumors, that the Angels promised Otani that he could be a two-way player. It was a condition of his contract, and that's why he signed there. Do you know if that's true? I, obviously, I don't. I haven't seen the contract, but... Uh, Boy, oh boy, and that, that's what I mean by the Angels being in a pickle. Um, this, is, uh, this, uh, this is a tough situation. A while back on Baseball HQ Radio, we were talking about Otani, and you advised listeners not to forget about Luis Valbuena betting on the come that uh, Otani might not make it as a hitter based on what we had seen from some analysts. Uh, any new valuation on Luis Valbuena given Otani's struggles? Well, uh, Valbuena is an interesting guy. I mean, he, he only hit 199 last year. But he, he hit 17 home runs in the second half. The power has always been there. The problem is he's he's always hitting somewhere between 250 and a buck 99, or at least he has for the past four years. And you don't know what you're going to get. I mean, he could be a he hit 224 in 2015, 260 in 2016, 199 last year. Um, the interesting thing about him is he's a left-handed hitter and. The Angels have lowered the wall in right field. They've got a brand new scoreboard that they put elsewhere. So they've taken the scoreboard out of right field. They've lowered that wall by 10 feet. So if Valbuena plays, he's going to hit home runs. If you can deal with the batting average and and hopefully uh, look for a, a more fortunate hit rate than he had last year, I think his hit rate was, uh, I'm looking at it right now, it was 21%. That's going to rebound. And the Otani thing doesn't work out. You get a real bargain in Luis Valbuena. I think so too, but I'm a little more worried about the hit rate than you might be. I've noticed that in like five out of the last seven years, he's had hit rates well below 25%, which is low. But sometimes, you know, we say if you show a skill, you own it. Sometimes if you show a lack of skill, you own it as well. And part of that might be he's always been a very fly ball heavy guy. Uh, last year, 47% fly balls, only 14% line drives. I think if he can get that line drive rate back up, he'll be all right. But if he stays at 14% line drives, 47% fly balls, especially since his hard contact rate is relatively low, Geez, Jock, I don't know. A Luis Valbuena might be full value for like a 220 batting average rather than a nice 250, 260 that won't kill you. Yeah, that fly ball observation is a very good, uh, very good observation. His fly ball rate has been well over 40% for the last uh, five years, and it was 47% uh, 
um, in uh, in 2017. And while we're talking about first base and DH, let's not forget uh, non-roster invitee Chris Carter. Um, reportedly, he's revamped his plate approach, his plate approach, and swing this off season for more contact. And the early spring returns are at least intriguing. So if uh, if he can maintain his power and strike out a little less, uh, who knows? Maybe he's the guy that. Uh, um, owner should be chasing if the Otani hitting experiment goes awry. I guess we'll have to wait and see on all of these fronts because, uh, you know, if Otani f- closes out spring training going, you know, 15 for 45 or something like that, maybe everybody will breathe a sigh of relief and off he'll go to the major leagues. Uh, I don't think it's going to happen, but yeah, it's definitely something we got to watch. Uh, Jock, thanks a million for helping us out. Uh, have you got any drafts this weekend? Um, no, both of my supplemental drafts for my keeper league start next week, so, but I'm preparing for them now. We're doing some last-minute trades. We're in uh, salary cap league, so everybody's trying to balance out their rosters positionally and, uh, and get under the cap, so uh, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a real busy time for sure. All right, Jock, thanks a million. Uh, talk to you again next week. Okay, PD. See ya. Take me out to the Take me out with the crowd. HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular HQ Radio commentaries. Coming up, we have frequent flyer and position previews. And leading off, it's the Minor League Minute. And here with a look at Colorado first base prospect Ryan McMahon is BaseballHQ.com Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon. The Colorado Rockies' Ryan McMahon has been impressive this spring, going 17 for 48, and looks to have secured the starting first base job heading into the season. The 23-year-old McMahon has a smooth left-handed stroke that generates loft to go along with his natural power. McMahon is a below-average runner but does have a strong arm and moves well defensively. In the past, he's seen action at second base in addition to first and his natural position at third, and that position flexibility could give him some added value if the Rockies opt to use him in that capacity. McMahon struggled through an injury-plagued season in 2016 that saw him hit just 242 with 12 home runs, but he bounced back in a big way last year, slashing 355 with a 403 on base percentage and a very impressive 583 slugging percentage with 39 doubles and 20 home runs between double and triple A. McMahon did have some swing and miss issues in the past, but made an adjustment last year, posting an 80% contact rate, and now profiles as a solid 280, 20-plus home run corner infielder, who at his peak could post several seasons of 300 with 30-plus home runs. Don't go crazy on draft day, but if you can somehow roster Ryan McMahon for a reasonable price, or even better, already own him in a keeper league, he should put up solid numbers in 2018 and as a leading contender for the NL Rookie of the Year award. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. During spring training and all season long, the BaseballHQ.com scouting team has reports and updates on all the top prospects, moves within the organizations, daily call-ups reports once the season starts, pretty much everything you need to keep tabs on those rising stars. This week's prospect coverage includes Chris Blessing, who kicks off his series The Eyes Have It by scouting the Perfect Game High School Showdown in Emerson, Georgia, focusing on shortstop Nander DeSatis and catcher Will Banfield. If you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your leagues, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. 
Now it's time for Frequent Flyer, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer, because they could be available in your free agent pool, and they have the potential to deliver those big returns. This week's Frequent Flyer is Baltimore outfielder Anthony Santander, and here to tell you more is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. Last week, we told you about 22-year-old Baltimore Orioles outfielder Austin Hayes, who might eventually play like Mays and run like Hayes, quoting the 1989 hit movie Major League. But there's another Orioles outfielder whose surprising spring performance is ruffling more than a few feathers in Baltimore. Currently ranked third among all players this spring for runs batted in, only one RBI behind teammate Manny Machado, 23-year-old Orioles outfielder Anthony Santander is making quite an impression this spring. While it would be easy to dismiss his 349 batting average and 960 OPS through 17 spring training games, Anthony Santander's situation is quite unique. The Orioles must keep Anthony Santander on the 25-man roster for 44 days in order to maintain his rights. The former Rule 5 draft pick from Cleveland in 2016 only played in 13 games for the Orioles in 2017 due to various injuries. But he did bat a respectable 267 in those 13 games. Not bad for a guy who had not previously played above double A. In fact, our own Chris Olson in the February 13th edition of Plague Time Tomorrow on BaseballHQ.com pointed out that whether the 23-year-old switch hitter, who has just 90 plate appearances above high A, is ready to assume a full-time role remains to be seen. That's why Anthony Santander, like all of our for good flyers, should be considered to be a long shot, who may be worth a flyer if he is still available in your draft. But consider this. Anthony Santander can be a terrific offensive producer with above-average power and a solid eye, according to Baseball HQ's 2018 Minor League Baseball Analyst. Indeed, at AA, Anthony Santander produced a solid batting eye ratio, or walks-to-strikeouts ratio, of 82. According to our research, a batting eye ratio of 82 correlated to a batting average of 269 in 2017. What was Anthony Santander's batting average in Baltimore in 2017? 267. Is 267 comparable to 269? Absolutely. See how that works? Now let's add Baltimore first baseman Chris Davis into the equation. Chris Davis, who is currently sidelined with a sore right elbow, will not likely be ready for opening day in two weeks. That probably means that Trey Mancini will move from left field to first base for the start of the season. So, if the Orioles want to give Anthony Santander a look at the big league level, and keep in mind that Anthony Santander currently leads all Orioles players in spring training at-bats, wouldn't it make sense to plug Anthony Santander into left field for the better part of the required 44 games? And, if that's the case, shouldn't you plug Anthony Santander into your lineup? Absolutely. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has our frequent flyer comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for position previews, and here to wrap up his series with a scan of catchers and designated hitters is Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick. Welcome to our final position preview for 2018. Most drafts and auctions are scheduled for the next three weekends, so you can download our previous episodes to catch up or review. 
We're using the universal draft grid from the 2018 Baseball Forecaster to see how many players are at each tier level in mixed and only leagues. The universal draft grid employs standard roto categories and 20-game position eligibility. So, for example, if your league requires only 10 games or uses on-base percentage instead of batting average, you'll need to adjust. For a precise picture of individual player rankings and values specific to your leagues, use the custom draft guide at BaseballHQ.com. Now let's look at catchers and designated hitters. We divide players into seven tiers. Elite, gold, stars, regulars, mid-level, bench, and fringe. To identify potential targets, we use bold print for those with reliability grades of B or better in each of three criteria. Health, playing time or experience, and consistency. As usual, catchers and designated hitters who can contribute greatly are scarce this season. Of the seven tiers in our Universal Draft Grid, the top two tiers are completely devoid of both catchers and designated hitters. In the next two tiers, there are only five catchers and two DHs. At catcher, Gary Sanchez is all alone in the American League, and among the top four National League catchers, Jacob Realmuto is the only one with good reliability grades, and he's just recovering from a spring injury. In short, competition will be tough for those seven impact players, especially in American League-only leagues. If we don't have your attention yet, look on page 58 of the Forecaster. There, we remind you of our research showing that $1 or late-round catchers are the only group of players who return negative value. To avoid rostering a catcher who detracts from your team, or worse, two such catchers, let's focus on the 28 mid-level and bench-tier catchers, along with the five designated hitters in those two tiers. To begin with the American League designated hitters, 38-year-old Nelson Cruz has the only set of straight A's among the entire list of seven viable DHs, and like Real Muto, he's recovering from a spring injury. Two more DHs of note are the slimmed-down Kendris Morales and Rays rookie Jake Bowers, who could gain eligibility at outfield and or first base as well. Back behind the plate, there are seven mid-level catchers. The American League has five, and the National League only two. At the bench level, the American League has seven, and the National League catches up with 14. Combined, the 28 catchers at those two levels are distributed a bit unevenly. The National League has 16, and the American League has 12. But that's misleading, because in the National League, eight of the 16 are in more or less 50-50 job shares for the Braves, Dodgers, Brewers, and Phillies. The bottom line for backstops is each league has just 10 targets. So don't wait or try to go too cheap on catchers. If your league still uses two catchers, it will require some concentration to land a pair of worthwhile ones. The most reliable catchers besides Real Muto are Yasmani Grandal in the National League and Salvador Perez, Russell Martin, and Brian McCann in the American League. The best American League sleeper is James McCann, who emerged for the Tigers last season and then had his platoon partner traded away at the deadline. Coincidentally, it's that former platoon partner, Alex Avila, who's now the best National League sleeper after signing a two-year deal to start for the Diamondbacks. So remember our research showing that $1 or late-round catchers can hurt you. Target the 10 starting mid-level and bench-tier catchers in each league. And don't overlook the three mid-level and bench-tier designated hitters who have jobs in the American League. For bargains and values at catcher, designated hitter, and every other position, read the Market Pulse columns by Matthew Cedarholm on our site. Best of luck with your plans for catchers and designated hitters and with all your 2018 drafts and auctions. We'll be back with weekend pitcher matchups on our opening day edition. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. 
Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick does our weekend pitcher matchup segments during the season and has been delivering his position previews here at Baseball HQ Radio all through spring training. When we return, it's part two of our feature interview with guest expert Jeff Zimmerman. Stay right there. It's Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview, and it's my pleasure once more to be joined by Jeff Zimmerman of Rotographs, The Hardball Times, Rotowire, Baseball HQ, and a lot of other places. Jeff, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me back. Jeff, at Rotographs, you're putting out a regular spring training notes column. This is really good stuff, looking at fantasy notable goings-on. Uh, first, how do you gather your info? What are you looking for? Generally, I just look through the box scores. There's not, and, and it's not even, I'm not looking to see who's producing, but kind of if they have their main lineup, who's playing where. And um, a lot of times I'm looking to see which pitchers are going a long distance, which ones... Um, and I may go watch a game if it's some, it's usually not the top 20 or 30 or 40 guys I'm interested in. It's kind of those guys toward the end that could see a big jump up. And and another thing is I just try to read a lot of the, kind of the notes that have come out of there, and a lot of the stuff's kind of fluff. But sometimes you get some um, decent information. Like I just found out the other day that Andy Diaz has no plan to raise his launch angle. I think he was kind of a sleeper for a lot of people, but if he's just going to, constantly just hit the ball really hard into the ground, I think his value is kind of limited. A couple of days ago, uh, you said Christian Yelich, now of Milwaukee, might take a small hit in value, and this is exactly what you were talking about. You check out the, the box scores, you see that uh, batting order position could be an issue. Well, what did you mean? In the NL, the leadoff spot, it takes a big hit, especially when it comes to like RBI projections. Because you do lead off, even if you get a hit, you have no chance to drive someone in unless you hit a home run on your first at bat. And you're also hitting right in front of the pitcher and usually the catcher, and most of those times those guys are on base. So I remember earlier when um, Yelich and Kane signed, um, Fred Zinke of MLB.com wrote out, like, which one do you value more? And I was like, whoever's not leading off. Because it's like at least the other person, like Kane now, has Yelich hitting in front of him, and he can hit him in, and he can also get running, and has the other boppers behind him to drive in. So I think it's fine for the Brewers, but it just his mix is going to be really run um, pushing this year, which I wouldn't even be surprised if you know he has twice as many runs as RBIs, considering kind of how bad the back of that um, Brewers lineup, um, lineup is. It's not horrible back there, but it's just not 
great. So it's just a small bump down in value, but it's kind of one of those things you look for is seeing who's playing where. And um, and I want to kind of see on some of these other lineups on how the how things kind of shake out too. Isn't the conventional wisdom, though, Jeff, that a hitter might get more stolen base opportunities? And you mentioned runs, and they count just as much as RBIs as a category. Well, once he's in the leadoff position, then if he were hitting second, third, fourth, wherever? Yeah, and and he probably, like I said, he, he'll he get on, and he could definitely be running with Kane. Um, it's, it's just a small bump, but it's one of those that RBIs in the NL number one spot is one of the places you don't want to be. It's kind of like stolen bases in the NL number eight spot. Like you don't want your guy to be going to the eight spot because he's not going to run with the pitcher hitting. So it almost cuts your stolen base opportunities normally in half if a guy gets moved down to the eight spot. It's just one of those few kind of positions you just kind of want to keep track of where a guy is. And it's not bad that he's losing, you know, he's going to have a lot of runs for you. But if you were counting, you know, when you come in and you're looking at your team and you're like, oh, I'm going to get 90, 90, you know, runs and RBIs from Yelich, it may be closer to 110, 60. Like the overall total may be close, but your balance may be out of whack and you may have to trade him later to kind of put that more in tune. Or at least keep it in mind when you're planning your roster at draft to say to, say to yourself, I have to look at a maybe somebody with a bit more power bat and, and reset that balance. I understand what you mean. Uh, you also said you spotted something with the uh, Rays starting pitcher Chris Archer and his pitch mix. Yeah, he's trying to throw a change and a curveball. The change is, it was horrible. When I, from what he's thrown, it's not good. He threw a couple really good-looking curves. And the other problem was is he had these other bad pitches, and you couldn't tell if it was a change or the curve. But I'm kind of interested to see if he can keep this curve up. I mean, we're not going to have any pitch tracking stuff, and I'm kind of hoping he can at least get to a stadium with a radar gun. There's three of them in the National League where you can watch it, the two um, New York stadiums and the Nationals, and kind of see what he's throwing. But I'm, I'm a little bit intrigued if he can get this curveball going and throw it for strikes that he can um, – finally be able to work that third time through the order and um, move himself in the top, top echelon of pitchers. I'm not 100% sure it's there yet, and he's worked with it before. He's kind of been more on the change before. But he's it's definitely something that I'm keeping track of and I'm interested in. And you reported some cautious optimism about Dinaldson Lamette. Uh, what's he doing out there that you liked? His two top two pitches are awesome. His fastball and his slider are great. He, he's got nothing else. He's, I kind of see him possibly turning into Archer where he's going to get you these ton of strikeouts. You're just going to have to kind of live with a high ERA, and maybe the Padres will get him out before he tries to do that third time through the order. But that will kind of limit your wins and everything. But I would not be surprised one bit if he's like a top 20 pitcher next year. Like we're valuing him that way. Kind of like in the Michael Pineda mold, these guys are just so dominating with two pitches, but it's like they could get that third, we'll take them up there, but the, I kind of put them all kind of in that same category where it's like, well, you're good, but we can live with it. You know, kind of have to, until you get that third pitch, you're just not going to be great. And you noted an issue that raised a red flag for you about Zach Granke of uh, Arizona. What was the problem there? Is a little bit down, and to make matters worse, I'm 
kind of been looking at the numbers that the gun that they're using um, in the one stadium for pitch up that has the um, pitch track stuff might be a little bit hot by like one mile an hour. So he was like one mile an hour down, Grinky, and you add another one to it, he may be down two. That worries me a little bit. But Grinky's never been a guy that's totally, for a few seasons, lived off his fastball, and he kind of messes around a little bit. So it's kind of one of these deals like he's a guy I'm going to keep track of, and I may, you know, if I'm deciding between two pitchers that are similarly priced in the draft, I may just take the other guy. I'm not going to drop Grinky a ton, but I may just, he may just move down like a slot. And that's kind of what I'm looking at right now in this, you know, this part of the season. Like, oh, is he a little bit hurt? You know, should I, I'll just, if two guys are close, it's one of these kind of tiebreakers. You've mentioned quite a few different things that you're looking at uh, with pitchers. Uh, do you have a general template for the things you're looking at when you consider pitching in spring training? One is the velocities whenever I can find it. And usually what I'll do is the same thing with going through the box scores is look to see who threw and then just kind of check Twitter to see if anyone mentioned anything or kind of check an article to see if they mentioned anything. There's only one stadium that, that we constantly get it. It's Colorado's and Arizona's home stadium. You'll get those readings from that one. They're available on Brooks Baseball. So I just try mm-hmm. to get whatever velocities I can. And the other thing is I have a group of pitchers that I'm looking at to see if they improve. Last year at the end of the season, I went through which players I missed on. It's like, who as an industry did we miss on? And two of the guys that came up was Luis Severino and Robbie Ray. That, I mean, Severino wasn't barely even drafted, and Ray was, might not even been in 12-team leagues. or You know, he was really low. And both of them added a pitch. And even in the news, there was no mention of it. So what I did this year is I was like, which pitchers, if they add a great pitch, will take a huge step up? So there's um, a few names I went through and started targeting, and Chris Archer is one, and Dilson Lamette's one, and Sensatella of the Rockies is one. That They're getting a buy with two pitches, but it was just this group of pitchers that if they add a third pitch, that we, we really could see them move up. Uh, going over to the hitters briefly, you said you think Matt Kemp's going to be the opening left fielder for the They've Dodgers? They've given him a lot of time there with the opening group. And I wouldn't 100% be surprised, but I'm not sure. And he's hitting good right now, so maybe he's been hurt. Maybe the Dodgers know something that way. He's kind of a guy that I don't, I'm don't. i not going to rely on, but he's definitely a guy I'm looking at in the reserve rounds to see if he actually keeps the job, how he hits, and if it's not good, then just move on. You know, it's like, but if, if he's actually continues hitting the way he is, and I, don't, I know spring training chats aren't, predictive but it's like when you have guys that are close in talent level the guy that's currently doing it is going to get the first shot at it and jock peterson's not hitting very good right now kemp is they got similar similar projections so i wouldn't be surprised he's kind of one that kind of keep on that if he keeps on it he may start that way he may not be able to keep it for the whole year but it's definitely kind of one of those surprises like well he's you know, for this many straight games, been hitting in the middle of the lineup and been playing with the A group. So it's just something I'm definitely keeping track of that I'm not going to be surprised if he does start the season on the team.
Well, you mentioned batting order position with Yelich. You mentioned playing time period for the Matt Camp issue. Are there any other items on the template for hitter assessment that you follow in these spring training games? The one item which is kind of bad is you almost have to wait till it's over. Is it's the only stat right now that I'll look at is their air air ball ground ball um, combination to see if they're some of these guys that are. Um, putting the ball in the air a little bit more if they're trying to go with the fly ball. And what I did is I went through the Baseball HQ forecaster and just took those. There's a a table of the top ground ball hitters, and I was like, these are the guys, if they raise their launch angle, can improve the most. Josh Bell's one for the Pirates, Hosmer, Yelich is one, another one. And it's like, are they showing signs of it? And I sorry, I don't even have the title right now, but I wrote an article at Fangraphs on it. And it kind of compares in spring training stats. The only place I could find it is at MLB.com, and it's a ratio of air outs to ground outs. And I ran that com- that comparison to what actually ground ball percentage is. So you can kind of compare to see if some of these guys are raising the ball a little bit. And I looked back at it, and it's fairly predictive. The problem is you almost have to wait till spring training's over to get enough stats for it to be a little bit predictive. And by then, most people have drafted. Right. So it's kind of this fine line that, we may be able to find some, but it may be too late. So it's, I think that's a huge problem with spring trainings. We only got a month, and how often do we base you know, all of our stats off of in a month during the regular season, not alone spring training where guys are even getting you know, one at bat or two at bats a game. And Jeff, in the early going, another factor is we hear a lot from hitters and pitchers alike that they're just working on things or getting stretched out, trying to get loosened up for the season. But at some point, they must start trying a little harder. When do you think we can start watching these games, watching these stats to get a useful feel about who's doing With what? Pitchers, they have to be doing it now. Now, the one thing that they may you may see with them is like I have to work on my curveball, and they may just throw the curveball every other pitch or every pitch. Um, I remember one time Zach Greinke got lit up. He's like, I threw 80% curveballs. They knew what was coming. You know, it was like, I'm working on my curveball. That's why I'm here. But for pitchers, they have to be throwing how their warm-up procedure is into it. Is They go max effort for the starters, like 30 pitches. And then they build it up to 40 or 35 or some order. You can kind of tell. But they don't go to like 100 pitches and like, oh, I'm at 80% effort. And then I go to... 90% effort, and then 95 and then 100 So kind of the velocity is one thing that I definitely – it starts at the beginning because pitchers are trying to build their arms up. It's just that's what they're in there for, and that's what they were doing. You know, when pitchers and catchers report, they already started trying to build their – their velocity should be almost ready at that point, and then they start trying to go longer. With hitters, they could be working on things, and that's kind of where I – I think the ground ball and air ball stuff comes into effect is that they're trying to raise their launch angles to begin with, and maybe they're not making perfect contact, but, you know, they're trying to get stuff up and so forth. But like I said, there's so little I actually look at that even if they're trying or not, it's, um, it's tough to tell. I mean, like, probably the one person I've watched half is at bats, and the other half I missed just because there wasn't video on it is uh, Miguel Cabrera. It's just seeing if he can drive the ball, and he really hasn't yet. So I just want to see him just really uncork one, you know, launch one, you know, 20 rows deep into the outfield. And it just, I mean, he's had kind of some line drives or even some extra base hits, but it, they were all kind of 
ground ball swings, and he's making great contact. I think he's still going to be a great average guy, but there's just no power behind it yet. And that's kind of one thing I was just like, I want to see at least one, and it'd be nice like five times of him just really getting a hold of the ball. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Jeff Zimmerman. And Jeff, at Rotographs, you wrote recently about trying to analyze closers with particular emphasis on how likely a given closer is to keep the job for an entire season. And it's not as not as uh, common as I had thought. There's, the best guys were uh, like a lot lower about uh, how often they kept their jobs. And of course, this is huge since how to value closers depends so heavily on whether they do keep the jobs. What did you figure out? It's not good. It's just not pretty. And the biggest issue is just the injuries. I mean, your normal pitcher, a reliever is going to 40, 45% of them are going to go on the DL. So you're already kind of dealing with that. I mean, if a guy hasn't been and he's young, his chances may drop down to 30. So, I mean, that's like your baseline of a guy making it through the season is, you know, 70%. And if they have any kind of struggling struggles issues, they could be gone also, and you know it's like the guys that get traded. They, you know, that, that can be an issue also. So when I looked at it all, it, it's it, it's it's ugly. It's just straight up ugly. These initial guys, if they make it, so it kind of just gives you pause, spending a lot of resources on them. It's it's a necessary evil, but it's one I'm not. The more I look at it, it's just. When I, I just kind of wait until I have to do it. It's like I kind of want, a, like in a 15-team league, it's like, well, I want one of the top 15 guys and probably one of the next 15, but I'm probably not going to get, you know, one in 16. I may be looking at 10 and 25 or even lower than that. It's like since I know it's that way, I'm also kind of churning once the season starts pretty heavily on trying to get ahead of the situations and, Especially now with closures not being so bad, I don't mind starting a good reliever. Give me my good ratios, you know, in my starting lineup. I think nowadays, at least with myself, and I've seen other people do it, is we're not so much streaming starters, is we're taking out our starters and like the Colorado starts and throwing in our ace middle reliever like Chris Devensky, let him get a couple, you know, maybe five, six really good innings that week, and then kind of, or maybe just keep him in permanently and kind of just move out our starters that have a bad matchup. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, and uh, something you said really struck with me is that when you think about a closer, they have so many paths out of playing time. Uh, you mentioned injury, uh, and of course ineffectiveness is a big thing, and it seems to me that it's worse for a relief pitcher in the closer role than it is for a starter, because uh, a bad start, uh, people are more willing to shake it off, but the spotlight is so bright on a blown save, or two blown saves in a week or something like that, that immediately this guy's under the, under the microscope as far as as his team is concerned, as far as his manager is concerned, it's so delicate how how tenuous their hold is on the role. With the study, it was pretty basic. Like I said, I just went with the starters, and some of them, like um, Robert Azuna, not Azuna, Diaz, Edwin Diaz, and Ken Giles, I think both lost their jobs last year and then got it back. Like, they struggled for a bit, but there really was no one in the bullpen. So, you know, they kind of got it back, and I think the biggest thing is just kind of look for these situations. And like I said, you really have to get a hold of them. I think a lot of people have noticed the Texas situation is horrible. 
and they're buying up Kila, I think is how you pronounce his last name, Kayla. Um, it's, like, I think Claudio is starting with the job, and he could maybe keep it. I mean, that's one other thing is that, you know, you can pull the Fernando Rodney and just spread out your blow-ups good enough that you can make it a whole season. But I think there's just some of these situations, it's like you have a pitcher that's better than the current closer, maybe pick them up for nothing or little of nothing, and you're just going to have to hold them. But, I mean, it's um, – and it kind of depends on league depth, too. I think in, like um, – in an only league, these guys are owned and they almost have to be. In a 15-team league, you kind of have to get ahead of it. It's like they may not be all owned just to start with, but people are kind of looking at the situation. And maybe in a 12- or 10-team league, you can act once the situation gets known. But um, I usually don't play the smaller ones, so I don't know with that. But I just know in like all the 15-team leagues I'm in, if there's a rough situation, you'll see people go ahead and start trying to speculate on who's going to get the closer's role. Yeah, I know that in uh, the uh, uh, Tell Wars American League league that I play in, it's uh, most of those setup guys that, that are second in line are spoken for, whether in the main draft or in the reserve rounds. And so you have to be very um, diligent watching the free agent moves and seeing who's in the pool who might be moving up within the hierarchy of the bullpen for injury reasons or because the second guy is struggling or there's all of those kinds of machinations that you have to be aware of. Uh, Well, you mentioned Alex Claudio as a guy who's uh, a little bit uh, shakier ground. Uh, Anybody else in Major League Baseball that you look at the bullpens and you go, you know, this is a guy that um, probably is not as strong as uh, maybe you might hope he was if you're going to draft him? What I'm kind of watching really close over the next few days, especially with our drafts coming up, is what's going to happen in St. Louis. I'm not – I think Lions is the best arm, but I'm not 100% sold on them going with a lefty. And that's just one that I'm – I don't 100% trust what's going to happen. And um, another one I'm – I'm kind of watching what's going to happen with the Rays. I'm a little bit surprised Colome hasn't been traded. And I wouldn't be surprised if someone's arm gets hurt that someone just does it here at the beginning. Or maybe they're going to wait to the trade deadline. But that's another one where I'm kind of like, there's really not an obvious choice right now. Which kind of, like I said, that's where I think like the, the Texas situation, it's like, it's just really obvious. Claudio's not the best. Keely, I mean, he gets hurt. But he's a lot better... This one just does it. There's some that are really shaky, and I kind of wonder if there's like some pitch, one of the pitchers takes a step forward with velocity or just some kind of unknown player we know in AAA just comes up and takes the job. Because a lot of these closer ones aren't. I'm just like looking down this list, like who was known that they were going to be like the closer, like from a ways off. So it's um it's a weird situation. Kind of worried, but also I've seen um, Zach Britton fall quite a bit. And depending on how your DL slots work, he might be a great one to do a stash and hold on to. He's kind of one that in Tout Wars I'm looking at that's like if he doesn't go in the main draft or in reserves, he's just like, I can do him. We have an unlimited DL, throw him on the DL slot, and then just let him, you know, whenever he comes back, see if he's good or not. 
or if he gets traded somewhere to be a closer. And uh, also you have Greg Holland floating around out there as a free agent, which could uh, upset the apple cart somewhere. I know that there are some uh, league rules that allow you to draft a guy who's a free agent, and people have been doing that um, with various players and with varying degrees of success, especially in only leagues where you have to bet that the free agent signs in the right league and so forth. So there's all those kind of ramifications to consider. Uh, Jeff, you mentioned uh, Tampa Bay and uh, their their uh, closing situation. I'm very curious about what you thought of their announced plan to go with four starters and then to cobble together a fifth, uh, and I quote, starter out of a bunch of bullpen guys for whenever the fifth spot rolls up in the rotation. I think they could, we'll see. I actually thought Matt Andrees wouldn't be a horrible starter. So maybe it's like we're going to do a bullpen game but I think he's going to start them all and only go maybe four, four innings or so, oh. and then cobble it together. Yeah. And maybe it's just so the team so the team lets him know that he's not going to be able to go like the full game type of thing. And you know, and you know, oh, you, whenever you come in, you let you go four innings, and then you, you know if, if you can skip a week, you can throw your bullpen and or you'll throw out the bullpen for those few days. We'll see how it works. I think at some point they're going to have to bring in another arm because those full bullpen days just really rack it, rack it up. And really none of their other starters, as much as I kind of like them, aren't one of those ones that you think. I mean, their ace is Chris Archer, and he never goes like a full eight innings ever. I mean, he's kind of a five, six-inning guy himself. So right. I think it's. I think they're going to be kind of taxing their bullpen to begin with, so... Maybe they can pull it for a month, but I think at some point they're going to be like, all right, we'll pull up a starter here just to give our bullpen a rest instead of having to throw them out for an extra whole day. I've talked about this on the show in the past, and it, it, what interests me is the uh, logistics of doing it, as you mentioned, like how, how often do we get these guys, how do we manage their rest, and so forth. But on the face of it, you'd think that uh, if a relief pitcher can throw 65 or 70 innings in a season with a bit more intelligent management, they should be able to get their best guys up to 95 or 100 innings, shouldn't they? Yeah, and a lot of those guys, you know, have been getting the two innings, you know, or, you know, five innings a week. Or, I mean, that's not too much to ask out of, you know, out of the full season. So I, I think it's definitely possible that they can push these guys up, and especially if they know what's coming and get it rested. I'm just worried it's like they're going to have one of those games where the day before the bullpen game they have some 20-inning game, go through the whole bullpen, and all those guys got to go through the next right. day then. So I think that that's going to be where they, where they may see the worst struggles at, is if I think at some point they're going to have to have a few guys come up and step in. And, and they probably know their schedule. I haven't really looked at it. That It's like, oh, all right, we've got it figured out. Well, we'll do the bullpen day, you know, game and then have a day off, or we'll do the bullpen game first, or however they want to see if they think they can work it. I think it's a really interesting experiment, and, and uh, in a way I hope it does work because it would open up a lot of uh, interesting um, possibilities for fantasy drafting because if all of a sudden you know that instead of there's a, a million relief pitchers out there who are going to get 45 or 50 fairly bad innings, there's going to be this subset of relievers that are going to get 115 really good innings over the course of a year, and you mentioned five innings a week, that's 130 innings in a year. All of a sudden that makes that guy look really interesting as a relief pitcher and certainly more interesting than, you know, your 130-inning uh, fifth starter. 
yeah, like I said, I, I'm just I want to see how their bullpen shakes out, and I think that's where everyone is. Like, I don't have a problem with it. I I think like someone like um the Dodgers, which they're kind of close. They haven't specifically gone to it. But it's a team with a little bit deeper pitching staff. I think it would be interesting to see if they could do it with some guys that are hurt or if they could just kind of buy a bunch of starters or relievers. Even like New York could possibly do it with their guys. Um, and I also think like some teams, instead of like, oh, we're going to bring up a fifth starter for this day, it's like, we'll just do the bullpen day. I think I think we'll see that happen every Every team may do it once or two or three times a year. It's like, well, we need a win, and we really don't want to throw up our, you know, bring up this triple A guy that's not throwing hard and give our guy a break, that we'll just do a bullpen day and do it that way. So I think that might be an option some teams may have that they're considering throughout the season. Something else I'm waiting for, and I, I don't know if it will ever happen because I freely admit I don't understand exactly how these uh, things work, but I know that between starts – your starters uh, sometimes go out there and throw a, a, a session that involves throwing pretty hard and pretty competitively for a little while just to stay loose. Why couldn't they do it in a game? There isn't any reason. I mean, the, the one thing that I've, I've sort of heard is that depending on how the game goes, they can um, – it depends if they're actually trying to work on something during the bullpen or if they're just throwing hard is the one thing that it's like, hey, we want to work on your curveball – we don't want you to work on your curveball against Mike Trout. You know what I'm saying? It's like, I think it's depending on the, how the bullpen goes. And it's happened a few times in the playoffs that teams have brought in this guy's like, hey, he's available at the bullpen because this is his throw day. We've got an inning out of him. He'll just do his throw day, can give us one inning of relief, and go with it that way. So I think it kind of depends on what the purpose of the bullpen is. But if someone's like, Max Scherzer that might not need anything to work on, and you know he's got to throw thirty pitches. It's like, well, can you come in here and throw it? But then if he gets hurt, I mean, the team's not never going to hear the end right, of it. Yeah, it, it's a tough call. I think that's the toughest part of it. If if anything goes wrong, then the media are going to jump on it. And uh, one of the big problems in management in, in baseball, I think, is that managers have to be so cognizant of doing things by the book because it's their fallback position. If something goes wrong and some reporter says, why'd you do it that way? He says, well, that's how everybody does it. And it's a, it's a pretty useful defense, but I wish, uh, I wish uh, maybe they would be a little more adventuresome. And I think that might happen, Jeff, as more young managers get into the, get into the league. We've already seen Gabe Kapler's flopping his worst outfielders back and forth from left to right, depending on who's up to bat. Why hasn't anybody been doing this for the last 50 years? I mean, it makes a lot of sense. If you've got a, a good outfielder and a bad one, you want to put the good one out where the ball's going to be. That actually has happened in a few games um, in history where they had a swap out. So I, I looked at, like, the most moves per inning, and there was, there was one game where, yeah, through the guys that were hurt, they basically threw a first baseman out there. And depending on the hitting, I mean, they swapped positions something like 30 times during the game. The two guys, and it happened like in the 70s or something, but it was just like, well, we're going to put our best. I mean, this guy's like, one is horrible and one was good, and they just swapped them that way. I think it's smart. I think um, you really have to have a huge advantage defensively. I think, I think it would be better for both guys to be comfortable in their position, be able to field it, but if one guy's got a huge advantage, might as well just take advantage of it. I think I think it's I think it's great. 
hopefully the guys don't wear down too much running back and forth. But um, so I was was like, well, one guy's like probably the better athlete of the two. He won't mind it. But the other guy that's bad, he's got to might not. There might be a reason he's out there and not playing the best. Yeah, well, like I said, I, I don't focus on this as a particularly uh, shining example of using your players intelligently. I think it's a good example, but more importantly, I think it's a, a young, new young manager who's willing to say, I don't care what the book says. I'm going to put the guy out there where he's going to do the most good. And, I, and in the long run, I think as these new young guys get into the big leagues and, uh, and have a chance to implement some of the ideas that a lot of us have been talking about and the sabermetric community has been talking about for a long time, can't help but improve the overall play. And like I said, the reason I'm looking forward to it is it's going to have such huge implications for fantasy if all of a sudden a certain manager even one or two in in all of baseball starts saying you know what i'm going to throw my number one and two guys my starters in relief regularly on their throw days if we need bullpen help and all of a sudden now you've got a pathway for max scherzer to go from you know 210 innings or 215 innings he could go up to 240 just adding in these occasional relief appearances which means uh, considering his ability to strike guys out probably means another, what, 15, 20 strikeouts. Hey, you can, you can gain a point in the category on that. Yes. It's like, I actually love kind of the in-season management. Um, even though I said I hated earlier, like, day-to-day stuff, but it's kind of like seeing, like, oh, this guy's kind of getting swapped out or if he's kind of throwing the extra inning. That's kind of where a lot of times, like, for a couple of weeks, I look at the box scores and like I said, it's not even results. It's like, oh, this guy's thrown two innings like twice. Like, I, you know, you kind of notice it, and it's like, oh, maybe they're going to use him more. And it's, you really, you know, you see a guy through six innings, but it's like, oh, all three of them were for two innings each time. It's like, well, maybe this should be the guy I need to target or try to trade for and so forth. So I think that's what you kind of, I'm looking more at the beginning is who's betting where in the lineup and um, how pitchers are getting used. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Jeff Zimmerman. And Jeff, before the season, I like to ask our expert guests to talk about players they think will be terrific value for the coming season or not worth their cost in the coming season, whether we're talking auction dollars or rounds. We call them boons and banes. Uh, That was a listener suggestion. I like it. Let's start with your boon guys you think should interest our listeners. Uh, Who's a boon hitter in the American League? I'm probably going to make people bad, but if you're in an average league, I like the price that Rignan Odor is going at. He's going to give you the home um, home runs and stolen bases. His average is always going to jump around because he just doesn't walk. Like I said, it's completely different in an on-base percentage league, but his, he's been going so cheap that he's kind of a guy just constantly been picking up. And the problem is, is I think other people have kind of caught on to that too, and his price wasn't as cheap as it was earlier, or maybe people's memory has – their memory was more in effect earlier on. They're like, I'm not touching him. They're like, you know, maybe he's not horrible. You know, it's kind of like, so he's moved up a little bit. But he's definitely a guy in the AL that I'm, um, I, I like a lot. Especially uh, the the thing about those very low average guys or very low OBP guys in those kind of leagues is if you're smart and you can balance him off with a guy who's a very high OBP guy and maybe isn't as productive in other areas, like Joe Maurer, for instance, if the auction f- uh, favors you, all of a sudden between the two of them, they're not a bad two players, you know, because you can uh, add up uh, add up their counting stats and balance out their ratio stat. Uh, how about in the National League, a boon hitter? I'm going to kind of go with another guy that was down and. This whole situation worries me a little bit, but they gave him a ton of money. Is Ian Desmond? I, I'm hoping he'll play all the time, and it's one of these deals like 
you know, like I said, he, they paid him some a ton of money. There's a bunch of other players that they brought in, but I think he's going to get a good chance to start, and he's really fallen down in rankings. Like some drafts, he'll go a little bit higher. If someone thinks he's going to play a full season. I think he'll even get knocked down more with the cargo signing. You may not have to pay much for him at all, and you could possibly end up with a top 30 starter if he plays a full healthy season in Colorado with the stolen bases and he'll have a bad high average. And Like I said, it's just kind of a big upside play where where he's going at right now, there's just not a lot of downside, and the upside, like I said, is um, quite immense. Moving to the mound uh, in the American League, who's a boon pitcher for you? David Price. I'm I'm kind of all in. I He's just going so late in drafts. I'm picking him up everywhere. Kind of the guys around him that he's going at, I'm like, well, I, I just want him more. It's kind of, um, like I said, in his overall value, it's like he's kind of Gio Gonzalez. I mean, there's there's times when Gio Gonzalez has gone before him. I just don't, I was like, no, I want David Price. Like David Price could be top of the hill, top of the line. Or Another one that's kind of um, similar is Rich Hill that he's going around. And like I said, I, David Price has a chance to throw 200 innings. Rich Hill's never going to. I mean, it's it just with the blisters and everything else. So I think you're paying for Price's floor right now, and his upside could be literally a top-10 pitcher. If you could get the wins, he'll get the strikeouts. So, I mean, if he throws – comes back to his workhorse type thing, you could end up with a top 10 pitcher just really far late. And one of the things in David Price's favor is he's done it before, and you have to believe that if a guy has done it once, he's capable at least of doing it again. In the National League, who's a pitcher, who's a boon for you? A guy I love and everyone hates is Jeff Samarja. He throws a ton of innings. He gets you a ton of strikeouts. And everyone hates his ERA, but... You're not if you remove it from last season, his starts at Colorado, like nope, you're not gonna start Jeff Samarge in Colorado. It's not one of these deals that's like you can't take off certain things. It's like ninety five percent of the pitchers you're not starting in Colorado. His ERA drops by like point six. So like if you can constantly remove his Colorado starts, which even if he's throwing great, I'm still probably not gonna throw him there. He's a lot better. He doesn't walk anyone. His whip's really great at bonus there. Like I said, you might have to deal with a little bit with the um, ERA, and um, he didn't get a ton of wins, which brings down his value, which I don't sort of care about. I mean, it, it matters some, but for what he's given you otherwise and at the price he's going, like I said, I've picked him up so much, and he's just one of these guys that people look at the ERA and move on. And uh, under the category of possibly noise, not news, I saw a story out of San Francisco the other day uh, that said that Smarge is adding pitches, and I guess he already has five or six that he uses in, in games. But he's uh, the, the story said he's trying to a new grip on his curveball because he wants to try to change the spin, make it a little harder for hitters to recognize, especially when you t- team it up with his regular curveball. Uh, what kind of weight do you put on those kind of stories? From him, I don't know. I'm kind of like he's got three. There's not a lot to gain, in my opinion, from that. I mean, the best pitcher in the game, Kershaw gets away with just three great pitches, and everyone knows, you know, and even he's really predictable about them. They're just really good. So as long as you kind of have them guessing, I think that that's the key. I think if you just have two, 
And the other key is is like um like Michael Pineda, he can never throw his um slider for strikes when he was in the league. So if you ever got ahead in the count, it's like he's got to come back with that fastball and you can just sit on it. So I, I think it's also having at least one of your breakers that you can throw for strikes that the hitter's not sitting on. But I don't throw a lot with him. I mean, he's got a ton of pitches. He, he was good. I, I don't worry so much about those top guys. I'm kind of looking for the bottom guys to move up. He's also apparently working on a straight change because he says he can throw it for strikes, which means he can use it earlier in the count as a as an offset to the fastball. It's all pretty interesting. Uh Jeff Zimmerman's Boons, a Rugnet Odor of Texas, Ian Desmond of Colorado, David Price of Boston, Jeff Samarja of San Francisco. Let's move over to the Baines, Jeff. Uh, these are guys about whom you think listeners should be a little more cautious. Starting again in the American League with a hitter. Aaron Judge. I, I've got him kind of in the middle of the second round. I always have him toward the back of that really good group, and he could really fall off on the average, and he just seems to be going at least in the first round. Someone believes in him, or they're looking at the home runs. And I'm worried that he's just – people are going to be really disappointed. Um, so, he's, like I said, it's not a ton. I'd still value him there. I just think he's getting a little too much helium, and it's just way too rich for what I'm willing to pay. Over in the National League, who's a hitter, who's a bane? It's a little bit harder here that um trying to pick it out, but the one guy is um Corey Seeger. I think he his production's like almost identical to his brother, and his brother's going like fifty spots later. And I think a lot of people think there's some positional scarcity or they had him as like the top prospect and need, I mean, it really doesn't matter now that maybe they're thinking there's more in there. He it's just his production compared to the people that it's going around him just not there so i've never even been close to owning him whenever my valuations come in and um i don't see any reason like he's he's going to really take a step forward I'd, i mean some people may believe that but just historically there's just no chance i mean there's just a chance of anyone else kind of st- you know taking a major step forward over to the pitcher's mound again in the american league who's a pitcher who's a bane for you the one um guy I just can't get behind, actually, is Kimbrell. He was kind of like the sixth closer off the board last year. Now he's number two, just almost consensus. He's going right behind Jansen, and it's like, what's really changed in the year? So I think his price is a little bit high. People are putting a lot into it and just think he's, like, safe, but he wasn't safe the year before. I don't know what changed in the year that made him this way. So it's one of these deals, like, you're just going to have to jump in a little bit early to get them, and I'm just going to be willing to wait a little bit and pick up my closer a little bit later. And finally in the National League, who's a Bane pitcher? Luke Weaver. He's just going way too high. He's kind of almost got the two pitches going on. His ERA was way pushed down last year from some bad luck. Again, like I have him so much further down in rankings than where he's going, and... um like I said, I just don't end up with end up with him. I'm kind of taking the Lester's and Tanaka's. It's kind of more the boring picks, and I kind of wonder if, you know, it's like, oh, I got Luke Weaver, he's this young guy, and instead I'm just going to end up with the old boring guys. And it's just like, I, I think they're hoping Luke Weaver becomes them, and like they're already that. Before we go, tell our listeners where they can follow you and read more of your work. 
right now you can follow me on Twitter at Jeff W. Zimmerman. Um, I usually put out like four to five articles a week at Rotographs. Um, the Hardball Times is doing a fantasy week. And then, um, yeah, I'm writing at Baseball HQ, putting out an article a month. I've done a couple of them there. And that's kind of it for right now. <laughs> I'm probably missing someone. So Jeff, thanks a million again. I do appreciate it. I'll see you in New York. Yes, we'll be at Stanton Island together. Staten Island, that's right, yeah. Yeah, they'll probably name it after Stanton here soon. <laughs> that's right. Take me out to the ball game. Take me out with the crowd. Buy me some peanuts and Cracker Jack. I don't care if I never get back. Let me root, root, root for the home team. If they don't win, it's a shame. For it's one, two, three strikes, you're out at the old ball game. Yes, it's one, two, three strikes, you're out at the old ball game. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. It's time now for our regular weekly talk with Todd. And as always, it's a pleasure to say hello once again to Todd Zola. Todd, welcome back to the show. Really good to be back with you, Patrick. If I if I sound a little tanned, it's because I'm coming to you from Florida. Uh, with the uh, Coming from, from uh, the, the little extravaganza thrown by Ron Chandler for the, uh, for the XFL draft. We meet down here and we do a little bit of a draft and go to some games. So if I'm if I sound a little sunburned to the listeners, that's why. Yeah, I thought you sounded a little bronze. <laughs> Todd, you, you were right regularly for ESPN in their fantasy baseball area. And uh, I saw a column you wrote the other day that had to do with uh, streaming pitchers. Uh, the title of it, if anybody's looking for it, is actually The New Rules of Streaming. And that, of course, caught my eye, and then uh, the content itself was fantastic. Streaming, of course, a popular tactic in leagues that allow it, and many do nowadays. But you say that streaming is easier said than done to do properly. What did you mean there? What I did was, uh, actually, you know what I wrote about this? It's probably in the, foreca- it's probably in the forecaster, too, because this is actually research I did, I think, under your, under your thumb back a few, d- few years back. But what I did was I looked at the uh, the standings of, of draft day. And if you take your pitching staff on draft day, and I'm not talking projected uh, numbers. I'm talking if you the nine starting pitchers from opening day, if they were the only pitchers throughout the year, and you compute their ERA and you compute their whip for the, you know as if they never would take another lineup, and then, then look at your actual team's ERA and whip, only two of the 15 teams in the NFBC ended up with better ERAs and whips than what they drafted, which means only two of the 15 teams use reserves or free agents to improve their ratios over the course of the season. And you can't tell me that all 15 teams weren't trying. And the other end of it is these two teams more often than not finished in the money. So it's one of those things that's necessary to do, but it's really hard to do. So that's that's sort of I mean you know if if, if streaming's that hard why do it? Well because most of the teams that win do it and do it successfully, whether they're successful because they got lucky and and free agent picked up a free agent really good pitcher or they're just really adept at streaming, you know I think it's probably a little bit of both, but it's it's like a necessary evil. Well you say that the the 
that it's difficult to do well. What is the most common mistake you think that uh, people make in trying to do this, this streaming activity uh, to benefit themselves and not succeeding? Well, one of the more common mistakes I think could be not being, I don't, not, not so much pressing it, but ahead of the game and the, the supply and demand. There's a pretty big demand for a small supply of what appear to be favorable matchups. So if you're in a daily league, you almost, you, you don't almost, you have to look at the schedule a few days in advance and, and make that move before that pitcher starts. Because if you try to make the move the previous evening or the, or the day of the game, they're going to be gone. So you sort of have to plan your week out in advance. And the same goes for weekly moves. You know, we, we're both in tout wars. It's a little harder to do in the AL and the NL just because of the crop of pitchers isn't as, isn't as solid. But in the mixed leagues, I'll, you know, I, what I, I, I review the fab for each of the mixed leagues. And a lot of times it's like, why did the guy pick up that pitcher? And then I'll note, you know, this, this week in, in, in tout, it's, it's tough because you have to start the pitcher. But a lot of times, like, why do you pick him up? Because he has to start him this week. But then I looked at the following week, and there were really good matchups. So maybe you, you suck it up for a pitcher at Texas for one start week, knowing the next week he's got two starts, and they're, you know, a, a against a couple of weaker teams. So you sort of have to, you know, think in advance to get the, the best matchups, or else you're just going to be stuck with the dregs when you're trying to do it. An important factor this year that you identified, Todd, is the addition of off days. Uh, first of all, how does that work? And more importantly, how do we need to manage it when we're considering streaming? What they've done is they, they, they're, they're not just tacking on four days. They're, they're closing the season at the same time. So it's not 26 weeks. It's 26 weeks plus Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday plus four days. And they, ha- you know, they, they can intersperse those four days throughout the course of the season now. Uh, I, I believe the East Coast teams, like normal, or, or, or should say northern and East Coast, northern teams, I should say, uh, w- weather-impacted cities usually have opening day and then the following day an off day. So a lot of the time, ta- a lot of the teams are going to have the the second day of the season be one of the four off days, just so they, if opening day gets rained out or in some cases snowed out, then you know those who purchased opening day tickets can still get their money's worth on on the first game of the season but still it still it still offers three or four extra days over the course of the 26 weeks and it just there are few there are going to be fewer weeks where a team has seven games and therefore has two automatic two start pitchers and we you know weekly leagues we look for those two start pitchers and it also is going to mean there's three or four more weeks where there's only six, and we're going to be playing that game. Are, are they, is the manager going to skip the fifth starter to to keep everybody on rest? Are they are they going to use the extra day to to get you know to get Max Scherzer or or, or Corey Kluber an extra day's worth of rest? Or are they going to you know so we're going to be playing that guessing game the whole time, and that's tough in weekly leagues because you just, sometimes you just don't know. You you expect uh, a middle a middle range pitcher to have two starts so therefore you put him in your lineup but on Tuesday or Wednesday the manager decides to do something else and he gets bumped or he gets pushed to a worse venue or or whatever so streaming is going to be a little trickier this year just because I think it's going to be harder to foresee rotations a week or two weeks in advance. 
We always tell our readers and listeners, don't chase wins. It's a mugs game, and I think that's generally too. But the trend has been for starters to go less deep into games and therefore to get fewer wins anyway. But then you found some interesting information about short games and the relationship with wins, which seems to be changing. There are fewer wins going to starting pitching. So in my head, I said to myself, I'll, I, you know, I'll bet you there's fewer starts of five and five and a third that get wins. And the, the actually the opposite is true. The number of five inning and five and a third, well, specifically five inning starts where the pitcher receives the win, you know, exactly five innings, is just markedly increasing from 2014 to 148 to 244 last year, almost 100 more. You know, now it, you know you think about it, now it kind of makes sense because with with the super bullpens and just being more cognizant of the third time through, manager are, managers are lifting their pitchers after five innings to get you know heat up the reliever in between innings, get him in there to start the sixth. So I think it's a, it's a change in management, and this may also you know you know sort of uh, feed into the fact that starts the average start is shorter. It's now five and a half innings. It's been trending downward for several years. Is it short? The starting uh, stints are as short as they've ever been, five and a half innings. And it might not be just because starters are stinking and getting lifted. It may. I think it's also because teams are much more cognizant of third time through the order. Let's get my guy out after five. He's got a two-run lead. Let's bring in our parade of relievers to protect it. So, even though inning, even though overall wins to starting pitchers are down a bit. Uh, they're not done as much as I thought, or it's not infecting the standings. You can still stream a five-inning starter and get a win, especially if he's on a team known to bring him out after five and or has a really solid bullpen. I mean, that's intuitively obvious to a lot, but sometimes it's nice to see the numbers back it up. And finally, Todd, you wrote about something that has really been an issue for me in planning my draft this year, and that's innings limits. My league is a thousand inning minimum, some of them 950, 900, but they're getting harder and harder to reach those limits, however low they get set. And uh, you say that maybe streaming could be helpful in this regard. Yeah, and well, not only that, uh, purchasing or drafting one of the few remaining horses. It's just, you know, I, I don't want to spend that much in a pitcher. Another check mark of spending on a pitcher or per investing an early draft pick is getting that extra 20 or 30 innings over somebody else. And it serves two purposes. It, it gets you more innings and it gets you a better buffer towards being able to absorb some of this other stuff at the back end. So it's, it, it's definitely, I mean, some leagues have dropped the innings limit. Others are just leaving it the same and, and making it more difficult to, uh, you know, more challenging. I don't want to say difficult, more challenging to get to that limit because as we just, you know, we've been talking about, starts are shorter. And, you know, a single start doesn't seem like much. But, you know, you know after 20 or 30, if they're all short uh, an out or two, you're suddenly 10 or 20 innings behind your your pace and you need to grab extra starters to make up for it so it is something you really need to do keep in mind in that uh maybe earlier you you, you may want to you may want to do your your streaming earlier in the season to get that innings uh built up so that you're not chasing the same supply and demand or the same demand the same supply there's a bigger demand at the end of, of teams oh no i better get my innings because i don't want to get penalized so if you're a little more diligent early, then perhaps you can uh, get that out of the way. The problem with that is, and I fall into this group, is you know before I stream my pitchers, I want to learn a little bit about them. 
I don't want to. I don't want to burn my bullets. And I, I don't know if this is a good matchup because the sample's so small. I don't know if this guy's really this good or if he just had a good start to the season. So I want to wait a, a week or a month or whatever. Not a week, but I want to wait a month, month and a half, and then I'll start to stream because I don't want to get burned by a guy who just had a nice April start. Uh, I don't know. Maybe you have to sort of relax that rule and take a couple chances early because you're going to be taking them late anyway. Um, so it's just it is something to think about if your league has got the same innings uh, minimum that it had previously, you got to think about it. Or if it has a cap, it may be harder to get to that cap, or or not as likely to get to the cap. So you really need to think about what to do. And to me, you know, I'm a buy pitching guy anyway. It's just another reason to invest in one of the top four pitchers. If you, if if you needed another one, there it is. Some people are, doesn't care how many reasons there are. They're not going to do it. And other people are already going to do it. So if you're on the edge, this could be the reason to do it. And just to be clear, uh, when we talk about streaming, we're, we're never talking about whether or not to start Chris Sale or whether or not to start uh, Max right. Scherzer. These are guys you're going to start no matter who the matchup is because you just have to assume that they're that they're going to do well. And I imagine the next tier down, your David Prices and guys like that are probably also not going to be streamed out. The The challenge is to find that fourth level starter or fifth level starter mm-hmm. who has the good matchup, right? Absolutely. You know, especially in a... On a on a you know a team like I don't know the Mariners if Ariel Miranda, you know maybe he's going to start at, at the the Angels and one at home or something like that a couple of good pitching parks, you want to use him that week. So it's it's not the top guys it's definitely the fringe guys. And this year as I suggested with fewer two start weeks, it's even going to be which middle tier guy has the better matchup, because that's what we're going to be focusing. Our spot starter aren't going to be two starters, but they're going to be that middle tier. Uh, you know who's got the better matchup in that middle tier. So it's going it's it's going to be uh it's going to be a real challenge for those of us that that have to you know write the two start articles every week which uh which I fall into that group not you know I'm I'm looking forward to it for the challenge but I'm not looking forward to it because I know I'll be sending in a lot of edits to my uh to my editor. Well Todd it's uh it's a great topic it was a wonderful column to read and as usual a great conversation here at Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks a million and we'll see you in uh New York for the Tow Wars weekend. Yep, looking forward to it, Patrick. Todd Zola writes regularly for Masters Ball, ESPN, and Rotowire, and he appears here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Master Notes, my weekly discussion about baseball and fantasy baseball. And this week, I want to talk about some spying I did recently during my draft prep. I only play in one league, the Tout Wars American League only. It's an experts league, and that means some of my opponents play in other experts leagues. And that means I can spy on them get a little insight into what they're thinking about certain players and maybe an idea of their intentions for the overall draft. Hit pitch split, stars and scrubs versus spread the risk, end game targets, sleepers, that sort of thing. I used to feel bad about doing this kind of surveillance and I hoped Edward Snowden wouldn't reveal my dastardly machinations, but a few years ago I laid out my complete draft plan in great detail in Master Notes and when I walked into the draft room one of my opponents came up to me and said thank you for the intelligence. Turns out we're all doing it. Anyway, three of my tout opponents, Larry Schechter, Lore Michaels, and the Glenn Colton-Rick Wolf partnership, were in the recent Labor American League draft, so I did a little double-knot investigating to spot some trends. And the league is also full of other terrific players, Tristan Cockroft, Steve Gardner, Mike Gianella, and Baseball HQ's own Dave Adler, whose auctions are always worth studying. Learn from the best, I always say. So here are some of the things I've noticed. 
The overall hit-pitch split in the Labor League was 69-31, which is pretty normal. The range of splits among individual Labor teams was 63-37 on the low end, all the way up to 80-20 at the high end, while my tout opponent splits ranged a little more narrowly. I still might go with a different split than 69-31, but I'll set the splits on the custom draft guide at Baseball HQ and the Rotolab drafting software I use to 69-31 to have an idea of the real values in an overall sense. I also wanted to see how the value tiers worked. Like the split, it was pretty chalky. Overall, 96 players, about a third of the total, went for $5 or less, including 36 who were dollar endgamers. Two-thirds of the hitters were bought for between $2 and $20, with a relatively smooth dispersal across that range. Only five hitters went for $35 or more, Mike Trout, Jose Altuve, Mookie Betts, Carlos Correa, and Manny Machado. The pitchers were more evenly distributed down the salary scale, but only after huge spending on the big two. Chris Sale went for $38 and Corey Kluber for $37. The remaining pitchers clustered around a $6 median, with two-thirds of pitchers costing between $2 and $15. Plenty of workable starters were bought in the $15 to $18 range, including Dallas Keuchel, David Price, and Jose Barrios. And the $9 to $13 tier included playable arms like Dylan Bundy, Aaron Sanchez, Jay Happ, Charlie Morton, and Rick Porcello. My three tout opponents bought 10 of the $16 pitchers in the auction, mostly endgame starters like Ian Kennedy. Each of them also took just two $1 hitters. I think that's interesting. The labor experts spent more on closers than I expected. And that's a trend we've been seeing across experts leagues this spring. Of the top 30 most expensive players, 10 were closers, ranging from Craig Kimbrell at $25 down to Cody Allen at 18 so a strategy based on low-cost closers is going to be forced into less palatable options, like Fernando Rodney and his handcuff Addison Reed, who went for $7 apiece, Alex Claudio, who went for $4 a buck less than his penmate Keone Kayla, and Joaquim Soria. I also wondered where the potential profits and losses were coming, so I compared auction prices to the custom draft guide output. As I expected, given the overall excellence of these drafters, neither the profits nor the losses were really significant. The median difference was less than a $1 loss, and two-thirds of the outcomes fell between plus and minus $4. The big profit among hitters? Curtis Granderson, whose $10 projected value was bought for just $3, and I'm assuming this was in the latter part of the auction. Other notable names among the profit makers, Denard Spann, an $8 profit on a $1 bid, Matt Joyce, $7 profit on a $5 bid, Joe Maurer, plus $7 on an $11 bid, and Josh Reddick, plus $15 profit on a $9 bid. Among the losers, the biggest bust was Machado. Baseball HQ projects him to a $21 season, a $14 haircut on a $35 bid. Other big overbids included Chris with a K Davis, a $17 projected slugger who cost $28 in the auction, and $10 busts included Nick Castellanos, who went for $25, Joey Gallo, who went for $28 in a batting average league, no less, and Jonathan Scope went for $23. Among pitchers, the big gains accrued mostly to inexpensive Lima relievers like Michael Givens, Nate Jones, and Will Harris, all of whom were plus $6 profits on bids ranging from 2 to 4 bucks. Starters were way less likely to project any kind of profit. Josh Tomlin, a $1 endgamer, projects to $9 value, and he was the biggest profit of the bunch. 
Another starter, Drew Pomerantz, was a $5 bid who's going to earn $9 according to the custom draft guide. And there was a handful of plus $3 profits, Felix Hernandez, Lance Lynn, Irvin Santana. The pitcher busts were led by Lance McCullers, a $15 bid who currently projects to earn just 4 That might be a bit of a speculation by that bidder. Four $9 losers, including Chris Archer, a $23 salary, Kevin Gosman at $14, Shohei Otani at $18, and Chris Sale. It's a lot of information to sift through and to incorporate into my planning, and to tell you the truth, I'm not sure the information even is actionable. The profit and loss data are based on projections, after all, and they're notoriously variable. And so much of auction pricing depends on the context at the time of bidding, positional needs, category needs, how much cash you have available, and personal preference. And that's especially true in the mid-game where most of the action takes place. I think pricing will tend to be a little more predictive at the top of the scale and at the bottom of the scale. But still, the data were interesting, and I'll leave you with one piece of information that really intrigued me. Out of the 25 hitters bought at the Labor American League auction for $25 or more, 22 projected to lose money. The exceptions, Trout, Aaron Judge, and Edwin Encarnacion. By contrast, hitters in the $10 to $14 salary range, half of them make profits. I'm just saying. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes columnist at BaseballHQ.com. You can get a longer version of Master Notes delivered to your email inbox every Thursday in the weekly free e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. You can also read Master Notes for free at the Baseball HQ website. And of course, we have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Thursday, March the 15th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number five of the 2018 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest for this Thursday edition of the show, Jeff Zimmerman of Rotographs, The Hardball Times, Rotowire, Baseball HQ, and elsewhere. Jeff's a great guy, does tremendous baseball research, and a fine job writing about it. He's always fun to talk to. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our Minor League Minute was presented by Baseball HQ Minor Leagues Analyst Rob Gordon. Our Frequent Flyer commentator was Baseball HQ Analyst Alex Becky. And our position previews were presented by Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick. Thanks as well to Todd Zola, our regular weekly guest on Talk with Todd. I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. And remember, you can stay in touch with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt. I'm a pretty good follow, and you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio, and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. It really does help us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again Tuesday with the next edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. 
Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.